episode 18 is with JSOC Master Sergeant Retired Chris Moyer. Dutch served in the US Army for 31 years in total. He's with the US Army Rangers for 10 years before moving into a Tier 1 unit where he spent a further 14 years. That doesn't add up to 31, you might be asking yourself. But you're right, and you're just going to have to listen to the podcast to find out where the remaining years were served. If you don't know where the US Army's Tier 1 unit is or the pipeline it takes to get there, and since Dutch never mentioned it himself, I'll help you out with a little clip. What's going on here? Oh, just some aerial target practice, sir. Didn't want to leave it behind. I'm talking about your weapon. No, Delta or no Delta, that's a hot weapon. You know better than that. Your safety should be on at all times, on base. Well, that's my safety, sir. That's right. He's one of those guys. Dutch talks extensively about his time served in Iraq, where he deployed on 10 combat deployments, racking up over 1,000 combat assaults. He mentions some of his career highlights, such as Operation Strike Back in Afghanistan 2001, and you'll be amazed to hear what those boys get up to on the ground, including helping deliver a baby in the middle of a direct action strike, and what it's like to crash multiple times in a helicopter. He specialised in uh, operating with canine assets and talks in depth about the operational capability that a dog can offer a team, and how these working dogs have helped bring home troops through their own sacrifice. Dutch is passionate about helping improve the law enforcement community and continues to offer training to police departments throughout the United States. He runs a successful consulting company that you can follow on Instagram, at DCM Consultant Actual. Tell the boys about this one because it's a banger. Any questions you have about the episode, reach out to me or Dutch, and we'll do our best to answer them. And without further ado, the Lead Wasps podcast episode 20 is live. Oh, zero four zero Alpha, confirm that's bombs dropping on Mansdrak. Zero four zero Alpha, confirm that's bombs dropping on Mansdrak. Fucking hell! That's Chris Moyer, so that's how it's kind of turned out to be. I spent 31 years in the United States Army. Um, 26 of those years were Special Operations Command. 14 in uh, JSOC as an operator. Um, the, the the seven, eight, whatever those other years are, the, or the in-betweens was uh, First Ranger Battalion as a as U.S. Army Ranger there. And uh, just now, you know, now I've, I've run some of the gamut of uh, independent contractors. I first, you know, I'll tell you, I t- when I first put my rifle down, I said, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to pick up a rifle. <laughs> I'm never, this is dumb, you know, I'm going to get out of this business and I'm going to make an off-road company and I'm going to drive off-road vehicles, whatever, but that didn't work out at all. And I took a job as a, 
as a product designer for an armor company called Diamondback Tactical, which does not exist any longer. They, Mr. Jason Beck from Tier Tactical, really was the basis for all that. And so he's taken his old equipment back. He Diamondback folded, and now they're all that stuff is in Peoria, Arizona, working with Tier Tactical. And I've done uh, contracting jobs with uh, the United States government. I've done contracting overseas. I've been in Beirut uh, and Erbil, which is northern Iraq. And lately I was in Afghanistan. I was in Kabul and uh, had a good time there working with some good mates. And now I'm not. COVID has struck and uh, has stopped a lot of this travel and there's different regulations and I have a passport issued right now as well and the State Department will not issue new ones right now. So just kind of waiting in the queue i'm the exact same i'm going uh, that's me in a nutshell, i'm going man. through uh i'm going through a visa process between, right now uh to get back to the states my wife's american um we've got a place in cincinnati so i'm i'm kind of the exact same uh we're in that that green card golden ticket fucking um segment of of legally getting to the states and it's been on hold since like march i'm stuck here she's been over there so we've, we've not seen each other for months um oh go, yeah going on a year so uh yeah i feel you bro i feel you so you're so you're a scotsman going to cincinnati yeah <laughs> i actually lived out there oh. for uh, for a while we were obviously i was over there legally leaving every three months of course but um yeah i was over there for a, a good time uh, before i had to come back and get my visa and then they denied it and then i've been stuck here since so um we're going through the waiver and fucking all that sort of stuff but we should be getting an answer anytime soon but like you like you've been dealing with it, it's just been a a wait hold and find out later on i guess yeah the state department has a pipeline obviously and this pipeline has been shut and we're just waiting just it's stupid uh you know i asked the i had a guy right so so again i used to work for a jazzy agency and i said hey can you not walk down this guy says yeah dude i love this stuff i'm gonna i'm gonna walk down the hallway here and i'm gonna knock on the door and i'm gonna make a handshake and i'll get you your renewal right away about two weeks later he, he wrote me back and he said hey Gush, we are all out of schlitz man we're done we, we can't uh we can't get it and for those of you who don't know schlitz is a horrible beer uh that uh america produces somewhere i don't know milwaukee i guess but it's uh it was never a good beer to begin with it's one of those beers when you absolutely have nothing else to do and you want to buy a 30 pack uh it costs about six bucks or whatever it is but it's probably wrong but yeah the guy i used the guy, I, the used, the guy I used to <laughs> hang, hang out with in uh in cincinnati would always smash smash bushes uh bush lights at the end end of the week on a, on a friday you bring a big pack of bush lights to the house and i'm like this stuff is fucking terrible like you need you need to sort yourself out <laughs> um but yeah like bush it's lights terrible absolutely beer. terrible yeah let's uh let's dive right into it then so on your bio that you sent me over you've obviously just mentioned that you've done 31 years in total uh but you actually started out in the late 80s as a tanky is that correct late 80s armor crewman yes sir uh m60 series tanks and they didn't even have uh laser range finders on them yet so that's how that's how old I did some of that in the M60A1 series tanks, which were very basic. Uh, 
but they were a great defensing type tank, defense type tank. So it was great for the NATO to have something like that. Uh, we, you know, I did a tour in Texas and I did a tour in Germany. And, uh, but I kind of, I, I came to, to realize that if I was really going to survive, I wanted to be an instrument. And then I, of course I wanted to be a ranger. So that's how that started. Was there any sort of a pipeline for you to, to transfer from the, from the tankies over into infantry or did you have to leave? Cause I, I know there was a gap, a gap a couple of years in there. Yeah, there was, there probably was there, but I tell you what, uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't, I was 21. I wanted to get the hell out. I was 20 actually. Um, I wanted to get the hell out. I had my fill of poor discipline. I had my fill of drug use. There was, there was uh, a lot of that in Europe in the eighties. There was a lot of drug use that discipline was poor. I wanted to be part of something greater, obviously. And these guys were just kind of there, not motivated to get a paycheck. Um, so yeah, what I did was the, the, my convoluted story. And I think it's funny, actually, if we play it right here. It can't be quite funny, but the convoluted story was I went back and I decided this was stupid and I wanted to change my life. So I wanted to be a special forces soldier. So I was going to prepare myself for special forces. So I went and I did some scuba diving and I went and did some jumping out of airplanes on my own and uh, there was this thing called the BEAR program, which I can't remember what that acronym stood for, but it was some sort of re-entry. It was some sort of re-entry. You could keep your rank and you'd re-enter into the special forces world and go through selection and stuff. And I didn't. I didn't do that because there was no room for me at the time. And then the recruiter says, well, I can get you a job. I can get you a, you could be a, a cook or you could be a chaplain's assistant. I said, no, I don't want neither one of those. I don't want to be a soldier. I want to be an instrument. So I waited a little bit longer and finally the infantry window opened back up and I went back into uh, into that. But I was in between. I was affiliated with the 19th Special Forces Group out of West Virginia. So I did some selection PT and I did a lot of good things with them. Um, but when I came back, when I came back, I came back, I was 27 years old and all of a sudden, I'm 26, I guess, I'm 26, and all of a sudden, I have to go through basic NAIT, all the whole thing. I have to go through the whole process over again. And those those times were quite funny. We had one, you know, one drill sergeant who who knew me as a soldier, and he said, well, the J, uh, what was the uh, governing body? It was, uh, was the tra trade-off. Yeah, trade-off says I'm a soldier, so I didn't have to do some of these other things. And the other sergeant, uh, he completely ignored all that and wanted to punish me every time he could, uh, which he did often. And, and the, the young kids, though, I would help the young kids as much as possible. And uh, I would do PT in the bathroom for lights out. Uh, I was part of the, you know, the, the, the elite physical training running part. But, you know, again, the, the field to pick from, it wasn't a bunch of super athletes. It was just a bunch of guys. Um, but, uh, I was able to outrun all the young kids. Of course, I was for sure. I had a better mindset. That was the biggest thing, right? So, and then finally AIT came around and we got switched over to, uh, another element and we were allowed to, uh, go through the infantry school. And then we actually even helped. So that was good too. Airborne school. I was an honor grad. I went to Ranger Doctrine Ranger Program, which was, uh, was fun. It was an honor grad. And let me go backwards. Just when I was in. When I was in uh, the reception unit, you you know, soldiers come to a pool, obviously, and get picked to go out. 
I had taken the kids out and I, we were you know, doing drill and ceremony. I was telling them what to expect. And uh, that's when I found out that I was going to be what's called 11 Mike. The Mike stands for mechanized. And we were, it was a, it was a helper of the drill sergeant or whatever he was doing. And he was helping. He said, Hey, you come over here and help me with these eyeglasses and hand them out to these kids and put them, you know, mark them on a piece of paper. And I saw my own name on there and it said me with a mic on it. And I said, Hey, what's this mean? <laughs> does it mean it's mechanized? Cause I think it, uh, it said, yeah, it does. I said, I don't, I don't want this. I just fucking come, I don't want just come from it. there. Yeah. I said, I want straight leg infantry. I want parachutes. I want rangers and give me some light. So with yeah, with his help, I got downstairs. The the huge reception pool has a big downstairs office area, and I got re I reenlisted on the spot for ranger contracts, and, and things went real well for me for a little bit. Like I said, I we, we crushed AIT. I got undergrad and and airborne. I got undergrad and uh, and rip. And then as soon as I got to ranger retiring, I got my ass handed to me. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got. I got smoked, but I was older, so it was fun. Like I said, it was fun. I was physically more fit than most of the kids, and and I had a better mental. Uh, you know, I could take the pain. Yeah, it's uh, I first got the range of time and say what? Go ahead. It's uh, it's pretty easy when you when you're a little bit older and you've got your head screwed on a little bit more to to deal with all the bullshit. You kind of realize that it's just noise and it's just you know it's going to end time. Can, it can't go on forever. Time's eventually going to come around and be on your side. But you mentioned something back then about before you even wanted to join back up, that you knew you wanted to go SF. So uh, my question is, what what was the what was the mindset of guys back then? Because obviously it was what was it ninety one. There wasn't what we what we now know that SF get up to. How how was it for you to? Um, essentially, say that you want to go for that. Was it kind of out of the box, or was it was a lot of guys doing that? I think both. I think I didn't know a lot of guys doing it, so that's one. But two, I give you. I think the two best reasons for me was, um, I love that amateur historian. I was, you know, into the tunnels of Kuchi, and I was learning about uh, these different SF units that would do great things across the border, the MACV SMG. Uh, Stuff like that. So I was really into that. I really wanted to see. I wanted to test my metal. This was, as far as I knew, this was the only thing that was, you know, it was tough, man. This was the thing. I wanted to do this. this I want to test my metal. I want to wear a green beret. Um, and then as I went to that SF unit in the 19th group in West Virginia, and I did some work out in California with them, and I thought I wasn't really... I wasn't all that excited about what they did, honestly, and some of the mindset. And some of the guys were Vietnam vets, and they said a lot of things in special forces proper had fallen off or different. So when I had the chance to do a ranger contract, I figured I'd just take that. And uh, that was, and that, to me, is the best thing for me, obviously. I, I, I wouldn't change anything now, looking back. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> some of the courses that you get from uh, from going down that pipeline, like you said, is a... Uh airborne school and um what was that like for you obviously just coming straight back in you're like right i'm going to sf and then you you end up going to ended up getting uh into your range of time but before that you go to airborne school you do the the other the other schools before you get there was that good fun or was it kind of like something that you had to overcome in terms of jumping out of a fucking plane 
No, it was good fun. It was. Um, the back then, right? You know, you had to run with boots on. We had to do a lot of pull-ups. Um, it was a lot of a lot of good running together. It was it was good. It was a lot of historical stuff in there too. And Fort Benning was, you know, a great place to be for that. That's where all the infantry stuff is, and blah blah blah. Um, a couple because I was a little older, I had a couple of pain issues with the boots running with the boots. I had a couple feet, leg issues, whatever, but I just just pushed through them. Uh, I was super surprised when they said that I was going to be the enlisted on a grad or test for it. I had to go to a board because um, I was just motivated all the time. I was all, all, anything I ever did, I was just yelling. I was just motivated, <laughs> whatever it was. You know? And it's a this is back in the day too when you had a C-130, so it was it was up and out. We had to do it a different way. They don't they don't jump the same way. This uh, of course the equipment has changed to a degree. Uh, a lot of it's basically the same, but uh, nah, it was good fun, man. It was, it was. Uh, I tell you, here's something funny though about the whole women in the army, women in the airborne. You know, you get. It was very man oriented at the time. Uh, there was a lot of swearing. There was a lot of beating. Some of that shit was going on, but there was a there was a woman, and they 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 told you, Dave. They said if you don't jump out of the thirty foot tower, because you had to jump out of the thirty foot tower over and over again to prove your proficiency of jumping out of a body. Yeah, it was that airplane body. And uh, if you don't jump out of the tower, if you refuse, then you, we're going to boot you. Well, there was a woman who was a uh, she was a judge advocate general corps officer for 18th Airborne Corps. I think she was slated to go to 18th Airborne Corps. She refused to jump out of the tower, but we saw her later. <laughs> I always wondered about, you know, come on, man. You gonna, just, just make the standards the standards. I don't care. You know, I don't care if it's a woman doing the thing. Just don't stop the standards. Yeah. I, uh, um, in my so last podcast. That'll come up later some other time, but. Yeah, in my last podcast, I had uh, a Green Beret on, and uh, we were talking about women in SF. And, um, then I actually, afterwards, I was like, I need to fucking check myself here. So I went on online to see if there was obviously women uh, in the infantry, and to my knowledge that there is. So I found one of them and uh, she's a lieutenant uh, with the 82nd Airborne or something like that, I think. So I reached out to her, said, listen, uh, if you wouldn't mind coming on the podcast, I'd love to ask you a few questions. Maybe you can open my mind up a little bit. Maybe you can tell me your side of the story, but... Um, I think I'm pretty fixed on, on, on the way I've got things right now. But, you know, if she, if she agrees to come on and she can fucking per, per, persuade me to to alter my perception of uh, what I think is the way it should be, then I'm all for it, but I don't know if she could. 2018, I trained with 24 different brigade combat teams across the U.S., Alaska, and Hawaii. And... Where was I? I was right here in Fort Bragg, and we were in a mob site, and we were we we discussed CQB, right? I mean, that's our hallmark, CQB. So we're doing CQB, and we're watching these. Uh, there was a dry run. They watch them do what they do, and I'm like, this person was timid to go in the door, timid to do the things that they need to do, and this person, I say this person, big clue here, I was a woman, and when she came back out of the room, when we indexed, she came back out of the room. I said, what do you? What's your MOA? She said, "Love Bravo." I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Honestly, I mean, honestly, just between me and you and everybody else, are you fucking kidding me? Who, whose body? No one, no one watches this fucking thing. podcast That's anyway. Oh, well, well, hopefully we'll fix that. But she, 
She must have weighed 90 pounds, maybe 80. I mean, she was a tiny little thing. Whose body are you going to drag out of here, girl? Who are you going to, who are you? And oh, by the way, if you are an infantryman, then you need to get in this door with aggression. Um, but it's, it is what it is. Yeah, there's a whole heap of there's a whole heap of things you could discuss there, but I don't want to labor the point too much. Um Your nation's army, my nation's army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, whatever, should not be a social experiment. That's exactly what the the other guy said that I had on um Pat Collins. He he said the exact same thing about the social experiment type deal. If it's not if it's not broken, don't fix yeah. it. And uh, the only reason that I feel, I feel that we're doing it is because of a, we're struggling so hard to recruit. And the reason they're struggling so hard to recruit is because the fucking op cycle has dried up so much compared to what we what we were on. And they've taken, and that's because they've taken so much funding away, so much that they're just hemorrhaging guys out of the military uh, and the infantry specifically. Um, I know it's not the case over over in the states for for funding, but. Um, it's probably more, more so, you know, it weighs more on politics over there than it does here. But politics is a big push here as well. There's, it's, it's all the, the, these decisions yes. are all political. Um, but the the main reason I think is because they the, in the UK they're just they're just dying to get anyone in, anyone, no matter how good you are, no matter where you're from, yeah. no matter fucking your sex, your you know, yeah, wrong your answer. ability, quality, quality first, quantity second. That's how it should be, yeah, but it's not what it is right now, I don't think. Don't get me wrong, we're getting we're getting hundreds of young guys signing up, thousands of young guys signing up who might be fucking amazing, who generally are the, the, the regular guys who are signing up, but um and they are good quality. But you're obviously if you lower the standards, you're gonna get shit shit of standards, you know. If you pay peanuts, you're gonna get monkeys. Um yeah. and that's kind of where we're at right now in in the UK. Um uh, but yeah, I think it's more to do with politics in the states right now, just to be that more fucking inclusive organization, regardless of what the what the effect is on on operational capability. Yeah, to me, like we said, the social experiment thing, and you know, when you have a championship sports club, do they pick people based on what they think the the demographic should be? No, they pick the best. They comb through and pick through deep, absolute best players they can get. And chances are, you know, it's the New England Patriots football team, right? The American football team. Arguably, the, probably the best team in the last 10 or 15 years. They don't pick women. How come? Oh, shocker. Because they want the best players and they want the biggest, hardest, meanest people they can get. And it's not women. Yeah, it's like uh, they don't even have fucking um, whatever. They don't even let men and women compete in the same tournament in tennis. Like, why the fuck would you let men and women fight in on the same battlefield? And don't get me wrong, the support arms there, but they're there to support. They're not there to do the fighting, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we'll we'll fucking end the rant there because people are turning are off, in, off on in on their droves okay. right now. <laughs> Anyway, let's get back to Ranger Battalion then. So, uh, in terms of rocking up to Ranger Battalion, how was that for your mindset? Uh, were you pumped? Yeah, I loved it. No, I really did. I love the Ranger Battalion. The, the Rangers have a you know no magic formula. You know, I was I was uh, talking to a professional there once upon a time, and and she ran a uh, company helicopter pilots and stuff. She was a logistical like command or whatever she was. And she was like, you know, I love you, Rangers, because there's no magic formula. 
you have to make the standards and you have to keep the standards or you go. And so I loved it for that. You know, the, the Rangers had an outward display of discipline, whether it was a haircut, the haircut, the, the good boots and stuff. And, and then it was, you know, now it's a brown boots. They used to have black ones. Um, and um, they still, there's still degrees of discipline. But when you told a Ranger, a young man, a young, young Ranger private what to do, they did. Or you get booted. If you can't make the standard, then you're gone. And there was no magic formula, man. So as long as your leader had, had, was able to put that down on paper, you know, Private Brown, no good. These are the reasons. Okay, how'd you go? Give me somebody who's better. Um, a lot of good young men. Well, it's, great. it's a great place for young men to, to grow up, without a doubt. Discipline and, and a lot of pride. A lot of pride. And uh, I'm I'm guessing that everyone's fucking motivated as hell to be there as well. <clears throat> well, it should be, but you know, in every organization, there's going to be there's going to be a few that need to go. But yeah, you want to find, of course, you want to come through and pick through the dudes that want to be there, that really want to make a difference, you know. And you got to have the leaders, and you, you know, and here's the thing: this really is all about leadership when it comes down to it, right? Because you got to have the great leaders, or the good leaders, at least, with a couple great ones sprinkled in on how to motivate these young men and to get what's good out of them. You know, I'm not abusing them, but but certainly a hard life. The Ranger scroll life is a hard life. It's a, it was, I mean, it was a lot of work. Yeah, so... PT, a lot of work, a lot of dedication. Um, you left the Ranger Battalion when you were up, up to Platoon Sergeant, so obviously there's a leadership role that you have that you've went through as a, as a team leader, squad leader, um, Sergeant, Platoon Sergeant, all of that. It's all, all various forms of leadership. So, what is it particularly that you that you learned while you were at the Rangers, in terms of uh, leadership? Uh, what makes a good leader? You know, in your in your own mind. That's a great question, man. I mean, we don't Please need to go example. fucking super philosophical. It's uh, it's completely. No, no, I, I, no, I love this shit. I really do. I love it. But it is it. I learned a lot there, a lot. I learned a lot about myself, of course. I learned a lot about the men and uh, firm but fair. You know, you're hard. You're completely hard, but you're fair. You're part of the culture too. You know, these a lot of guys, a lot of guys, uh, you know, don't do that. It hurts them too much, you know, or, or then there's the other guy who's a tyrant. <laughs> you're constantly training hard, never being rewarded. You've seen those guys before. I know you have. And, you know, it's some sort of thing that they're trying to protect. No, no, this is our family. Let's work super hard, super hard. Let's work harder than everybody else. I mean, if we're going to be here, why not be here for the best reason? And then you get rewarded afterwards. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Jay Brimson was one of our first arms. And what, some, of the, some of the things you had to do as a ranger, you had, to, you had blocks to check. You know, you had to run five miles in 40 minutes. You had to do a 12-mile road march in three hours. Um, those are the things you had to do. Absolutely. You had to do a score better than most everybody else in the PT test, blah, blah, blah. But one of the requisitions we had to do was we had to, we had to do a parachute jump, attack, mass attack parachute jump, uh, and we had to do a 24 mile road march. So that's an all nighter, you know, that's all fucking nighter, right? Whatever it is. And so we do this, we get together, we march, 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 you know, we're trying to keep your people in order or whatnot, and you make it to a place. Frago, target up ahead, you know, get, start planning a, planning a mission. So we get in, get off the road, of course, set up security, plan a mission. Everybody's tired. Everybody's smoked. You got people with blisters, you know, people with hurt feet, whatever they are. 
do the mission, accomplish what he asked us to do, you know, attack this thing, wipe out those bad guys, whatever, secure the fucking place. And once it's secured, right, he drives this big five-ton truck back there with a bunch of pallets and it has a bonfire, he brings breakfast in, <laughs> and then we do the after-action review right there. But it's a reward and it's family. Yeah. You know, it's it's a great time. You you worked your ass off. Now we're gonna relax for a minute, you know. And I'll tell you, there was leaders later on as I went through my career evolution. I told this guy, which I love, his name is Bob. I love him. And he he would always make you do more stuff than than you thought you were gonna. And even when I when I you know when I got to when I graduated to the best unit in the whole world as far as I'm concerned. And I would say, Bob, all you gotta do is you know, work really hard, and then maybe we get gather these uh, these precious cargo elements that you need to, you know, make a mission where we need to take these elements and you need to all get them over here. And you know, it's going to be hard to get there. It's going to be shooting. It's going to be physical events. And but when they get there, of course, they open up the precious cargo box, and in there is beer and steak. <laughs> and you know, we have a big breakfast. And he said, "What? We're doing their job." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, yeah, bro, we're doing their job because you're like, they'll be like Napoleon." You know, you need to be like Lord Nelson. You know, you need to be, you need to love your men, drive them hard, but love them. He, he didn't, but of, you know, he was successful. One of the key principles of war is uh, main, maintenance and morale. Uh, you should always, always look to keep the fucking morale um, high. Uh, British soldiers have got a very good reputation of doing that. I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've come across a few of them in, in your time. But yeah, that's uh, that's something that we keep dear to our chest. I think keeping the morale high. I've worked. I've worked with uh, your SAS, and I worked with the uh, Australian SASR, and uh, every time we're with your guys, man, we had great times. Always good people, super good people. A lot of a lot of names I've forgotten. A lot of a lot of great times, man. I, I tried to tell you, we were next to each other. Uh, our houses were next to each other in MSS Fernandez in uh, Baghdad in the Green Zone, and. I mean, the, the jarring that would go back between, right? The mouth, like, man, it was so good, right? It's a lot of fun. You know, why do you guys wear uh, sunglasses all the time? Or 4th of July is just another day or whatever, <laughs> whatever those uh, little bites might be, right? <clears throat> but they had a, you guys had a party. Your mates had a party and uh, we were not allowed to consume alcohol. I think at the time we weren't allowed to consume alcohol. You had a nice party going on and we got called out on a, Mish. So we went out and we get back at like zero five in the morning. And me and my buddy Lee, I'll never ever forget this. We slip it, slip across the gate, you know, we go in the gate, we're talking to the guys in the front yard, and you know, it's littered with what might be party materials, you know, beer cans or bottles or whatever. And one of your mates was in a inside of a cooler. He got his ass in a cooler full of full of ice and he was just <laughs> Just smashing that little cooler, and somebody had David Gray on the box, <laughs> and I was just like, I would, "Dude, I'm telling you, it was just this, this cool moment. It was very quiet, front yard, everybody's asleep. Whether you know whoever tribe was asleep, but it was a great moment. We're just sitting there, sitting on a beer in the middle of the yard, and all the aftermath of the party. We are in the afternoon. We still had our kid on, sweaty from the mission, and oh, just very chill. David Gray on the box. <laughs> it was really cool, man. Yeah, the boy, I regardless of what unit you're in the boys are fucking mental and you you you'll see some mad shit and all uh, you know every every other day pretty much 
I remember when we were deployed there and it just you tell me about the guy sitting in the cooler. I went round the I went round to the back of the back of our tent one day in, <clears throat> in the summer. One of the boys is lying there covered in this orange like fucking grease. So it almost looked like grease, you know, for like oiling up uh, hydraulics and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I says, uh, bro, what what the fuck's that on your uh, on your body? I bro. thought it was like I thought it was like some sort of like uh, tannin oil or whatever. He's like, oh yeah, I was uh, I was looking for the looking for the carrot oil to uh, to to work on my tan, to work on my up to to hit up bronze nice and hard. I'm like, all right, well, why is it fucking? Why is it all thick like that? Like, what what's the deal? And he's like, oh yeah, I couldn't find the uh, the tannin oil, so I just used gun oil. I just got the the oil from my gun and just used that instead. <laughs> He was in there, man. His skin was like, but about to be, uh, yeah, about to peel off his body at the time. But um, yeah, like you'll see some absolutely mad shit. Um, yeah, especially especially cutting around the boys. I don't think that's specifically an infantry thing. I think it's on all units. But you generally, you know, fucking another no, one. No, no, no. I think I think the crazy it, ones are certainly in infantry, ranger, SF. Yeah, you, yeah. The crazier ones are that. Yeah, yeah. They're always I, uh, trying to do something more exciting. I uh, I left uh, basic training and went straight out to uh, to Kandahar on, on uh, in two thousand and nine on, on on deployment. And uh, the very first time I got to my platoon, um, I went and seen. I, I got put in a tent, and one of the guys was like, "I oh, just fucking sit there, sit on your kit until someone comes in." I'm like, "All right, okay." So, eighteen years old, I'm just sitting on my kit waiting for someone to come in, and then I was a bit in there about ten minutes, ten fifteen minutes no phone or anything back then it's just fucking sit and look at the ceiling and uh so 10 or 15 minutes uh, goes by and this guy comes in completely bollock naked massive cock just fucking swinging about and he's like who the fuck are you <laughs> <laughs> like out, out of the complete blue he, this guy bollock naked comes storming in who the fuck are you and i'm like jesus christ there's like oh i'm i'm david i'm david uh uh, I'm a new guy. He's like, oh fucking crow, get, uh, you're in the wrong tent. I don't want you in here. And it was uh, the section commander for the uh, for the section, uh, one of the one of the sections in the platoon. So he chucked me out of his tent. So I'm standing in between in the platoon lines in the tents, and it's like, right, where the fuck do I go now? So eventually, I see a guy. He's like, oh, I'm I'm a new guy. And I uh, I uh, I just got told to go in that tent. But then the section commanders told me to get out. He's like, all right, we'll come in this tent. As soon as I got in that tent, the section commander was like, right, you get out. So I was stuck back in the middle again. I'm just like, what the fuck is going on here? I eventually got in a, in a, in a decent section. The section commander was good. He took me under his wing and uh, and looked after me. But yeah, the fucking, there's no, there's no softy, softy, nice to meet you. How are you doing? Where are you from? Are you settling in? None of that. You're an FNG, man. Yeah. Yeah, exactly yeah get the fuck out of my life i don't want to deal with you <laughs> yeah I, I got other shit to worry about fuck off <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um in terms in terms of your ranger um um time in the military how 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 was that for you and uh what what sort of things were you getting up to then it was all peacetime stuff then right so uh the gulf war was just over uh they had some of the cats had gone and jumped into uh, southwest asia where they jumped saudi arabia maybe and it was a big deal it was a you know the the seniors were all panama guys you had a couple of real seniors who had two gold stars on their jump wings which would be grenada and panama uh, 
Joshua Mitchell was that guy. Yeah, all the other cats that I knew though, and he later on became peers with, all had gold stars from Panama. I was, I was the oldest guy. Um, I'm a, I was a specialist, but I was older than everybody else. I just, <laughs> I was a tanker when Granite was going on. I was a tanker in '83 when Panama was going on. You know, so I didn't do any of that shit. Um, so I just wasn't high speed. Everybody else was, but. Um, yeah, learned just a, learned a whole lot about field craft. Learned a lot about uh, what to do in the woods. Of course, you know, I just I, again, I never, never, ever would replace it. Learned a lot about leadership about myself. Um, and you know, I'll tell you too something funny because, or funny or interesting, um, a lot of the kids would get disillusioned and they'd want to bail and they would say, "Well, I want to go SF. I don't want to do this anymore." And uh, I said, before you go, because I've been in the Army for a while before I was a Ranger, I said, before you just jump out and leave here, you have to know how many shooters are in the Ranger Regiment. You know, there's, there's three battalions, and there's about 120 in each company. Really, what it comes down to is about 1,500 shooters in the, <clears throat> the battalion, I'm sorry, in the, in the regiment. And uh, there was about, there's about 10,000 special operations staff, special forces guys, three and I said, so who's really more special? <laughs> it's up to you to decide that, not me. I'm, you know, my, I haven't been there, but certainly there was some special parts about being a uh, SF, but you know, a lot of kids were disillusioned. They just were tired of being <clears throat> disciplined, I think, or maybe they had just poor leadership and they were just wanting to be one, take a break. I think maybe they had the but, blinders uh, on because they never had to do a, a big long, selection like there is for uh you know a big long two-year selection like the rest of the green berets or do you think it was just you know that they they like you said they were disillusioned hey, immaturity disillusioned. Yeah. you know let me just get out of here this is this is dumb this is for the kids i said if you, if you do the ranger regiment right it's not just for kids not at all you know they they had you know they were doing support missions for a much higher tier you know so they're doing they're doing support missions for the National Mission Force. Um, that's pretty important. You know, you can get to learn a lot from those guys if you can hang out with them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what was your best role? What did what role did you enjoy the most in uh, in that regiment? Yeah, squad leader, I think. Squad leader and then section sergeant. Uh, I was the heavy weapons platoon sergeant for a small amount of time, but I think weapons squad leader is probably the best in the platoon. <clears throat> You know, the 40 guys in platoon, you got a platoon leader, commission officer, and you have a non-commission officer who runs the platoon. And then your two IC is the weapons squad leader. And I, I think that it was probably the best job. You you get to bounce ideas off of the platoon sergeant. You're, you're in the chain of command, if you will, but you're still just a squad leader. You have three machine guns um, or even a squad leader in a line squad, you know, when you have two teams of two. You know, we, yeah, that's, that's good, too. As a squad leader with two really good team leaders, you know, guys you want to hold back and not push forward, you know, two of you junior leaders inside your squad makes it for an easy gig. And uh, those are two of the best jobs, I think. Squad leader, line squad leader, and weapon squad leader. I would take those in a heartbeat. And at, yeah. that, at, that time you're, you're, at that time, you're pretty much a, a, an infantry subject matter expert. You know li literally everything there is to know. Um, and you're disseminating that amongst your guys. And for me, that was <clears throat> that was the best thing about being a, a search commander, like being able to answer any question that any of the guys asked me about, you know, light infantry stuff. Fuck about the tankies or mortars or 
javelin or anything i don't you know i don't really know that any of that in detail but in terms of infantry tactics infantry procedures and like and if someone was to come and ask me i knew it all um and for me it was just so much such a confidence booster at that time um yeah that was i would agree with you there it's a, it's a, a fantastic uh role to to have and a great opportunity to, to lead guys as well because you're really at the thick of it then that you're you're the you're the the tip of the spear that in terms of uh regular infantry stuff completely concur um it's handing down that knowledge right and then you if you look at regular infantry tactics it's so applicable in everything it's applicable to law enforcement it's applicable in cqb it's just different. You just take the same tactics and you just mold them to fit into these different spaces. It's all the same. If you wanted to, you could fucking... Like I told you I wanted to talk about the police stuff later, but... Yeah. If you wanted to, you could mold a fucking platoon attack uh, into your into your own life. You could do that. And, and if you oh, yeah. got the right, the right chess pieces in the right place, you'd be fucking winning. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who the fuck's going to take that role on. Um, so post, um, post, ra post Ranger <laughs> Regiment, what, what's, what's that looking for you then? How long, are you, how long have you served up until then, until you, until you go on selection? Yeah. So it was 99, 99. Uh, I made the jump to light speed and I'll, I wanted to select for, uh, for, for JSOC, you know, I want to be an operator. So, um, How, how long have I been in there? I don't even, I'm not sure I can uh, figure that out in my little head right now, how, how many years I had it, but uh, I was on the verge of making Sergeant First Class, so that would be, you know, platoon chart type of role. Um, and I go to selection and I fail. <laughs> and everybody thinks that I'm going to pass immediately because they have a high, uh, uh, I'm thought of highly there, but no, it's very difficult to, you know, so I went in the spring and I went back in the fall and I, and I passed the fall and it's certainly the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life is, uh, is that, that selection. So, um, 20, what am I, 20, 29, 30, 32, 33. I'm going through training and the guy who's been there for 10 years is younger than me. And I'm like, <laughs> damn, I just got here way too late. I just, I just got here. I did everything way too late. I did everything wrong. Uh, but it, it all, obviously it all worked out pretty well for me. I was, I was very, uh, I was humbled. I was honored. I was, you, you, we, uh, I don't know. I, I oftentimes in interviews, I don't want to go too far about what I did. I, I don't, you know, what we talked about. It was funny. I just talked to a guy today about, uh, you know, what. Yeah. Keep, keep it as, keep it to your level of upset as you want. I, I, I'm not going to push you at all. I don't really care too much. But what's the first rule of Python? Sorry, say that again. That's a question for you. What's the first rule of Fight Club? Yeah, yeah. Don't talk about Fight Club, of course. <laughs> so, but it's a funny thing. But there are people that don't. Oh, they don't get that. What you said. So, uh, uh, I don't know where I was. I got off track a bit. But oh yeah, I know what I'm saying. So when you so when you're there and you've made it. And, you know, selection is an ongoing process because just like the Rangers, you could fail at him and you could, if you do something wrong, if you get involved in the wrong people, the wrong things, 
uh, do you embarrass the organization in any way whatsoever? You know, gone, gone, gone. Um, if you have to take a, so you, you, where were you, where were you at? Uh, what unit were you in? I was, uh, in three Scots, the, the Black Watch is a, a Scottish infantry, infantry battalion. Oh, fuck it. Hey, Black, Black Watch. Oh yeah. The Black this, Watch. This, yeah. You're talking about history. You talk about history. That's an awesome history right there, bro. Yes. That is cool. That is so cool, man. That is so cool. Now, oh man, big, big, big props for you there. Anyway, <laughs> but so if, if, if it was like where you were, I'm telling you that here's what happened. So if you, if I had to go away to a school, so if you have to go away to a different school, right, you have to leave the unit and you go to a different school. That was the time, what we call unit appreciation time. You would leave there and you would deal with those people in that school or you deal with the support chain in that school. And you were like, you were like, damn, there's nothing like the people up there. There's nothing like that. So we're jaded. We come back jaded. Um, and everything I've done with them, I did the greatest times of my entire life. Period. Yeah, I mean, I can fucking imagine. But um, I, I like you, uh, decided to attempt selection over here as well. I failed the first time as well, uh, and I was unfortunate enough to get a long-term injury that I wasn't able to go back, and it eventually seen me uh, medically with, withdrawn from a uh, uh, medically discharged from the army. So you know, I fucking <laughs> it hurts deep down. <laughs> Uh, it hurts deep down knowing, you, knowing that I wanted you, it so bad, but you know it was kind of taken away from me. Did you make it to the beacon? Uh, so I done the first week and I failed the, on the swimming test. So I had I had actually been um, all my life I'd been a, I'd been a fucking swimmer ever since I was a kid. Um, my parents chucked me in the pool from an early age, and even throughout my whole life I'd been swimming very well. I thought. Um, and my, my weakness, I thought was my, uh, my CV. So I hammered the hills, hammered everything, hammered my CV, the whole lot got there. We'd done the, you know, a bunch of the, the minimum requirement stuff. And then you go out and do the, the, the DS leg walkabouts on the, on the hills. And then on the, on the Thursday got to a swim test and I'm like, I'm honestly confident as fuck. I'm like, I've jumped off the diving board, no issues doing the, the lengths, no issues, underwater swim, completely, completely fine. Uh, but there's this test that you have to do, you jump in with some uh, weighted kit, so with a belt kit and a rifle, uh, and you're in combat some boots, and you have to swim to one side, swim back again, and then tread water, hand your kit out and stuff like that. Um, I jump, and yeah. you have to jump in off a three meter diving board. So I jump in, and I'm like 200 pounds, 200, maybe 215 at the time. So I jump in and fucking sink. <laughs> I eventually get to the top and by the time I get to the top I, I just got unlucky and I, as I was get, getting a big grasp, uh, gasp of air I took in some water and it just put me off and um, ever since then I was struggling there's like 40 people in the pool you would think it'd be easy doing that doing that. but when when, it's, when there's that many people in the pool and the waves are kicking around and shit yeah, I just got unlucky and then uh, I just couldn't recover from then so eventually I, I failed I was like drowning the guy pulled me out with the pole uh, he's like, right, get back up and try again. But I, as soon as I jumped in the second time, I was already completely fucked from the first time and then that was it, I'd failed. But like, uh, that was a, a great learning experience for me because anything I do now in life, I just make myself undeniable. Like I, I make sure that I, I'm nowhere near the point of failure on anything. Um, 
and you know it's, I'm, I'm gutted I never got my a second shot at it but you know that's fucking life it is what it is well that's a bummer but yeah it's, if it was easy monkeys would do it right yeah uh, what did you fail so, on the first time just time time's a thing nobody you don't know the time and no one knows the time someone does somewhere <laughs> But time, 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 time. Funny thing you said about swimming, though. Uh, I'm not a good swimmer. And I failed uh, the swim portion as well. And I had a certain amount of window time to fix that or go away. And uh, I got in the water all the time. I was I was helped by two other of my mates, and they pushed me and they helped me and I ended up making it. But yeah. I'm not a, I'm not very, I'm not uh, super comfortable with the water. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's some great history in terms of uh, American SF, US Army SF tier one guys and uh, from coming from the uh, SES in the UK. I know that um, there was one guy who came across to do selection. He stayed here for what, three years and then took that took what he learned from here back over at the States um, and then implemented what, what we now know as a, as a JSOC. Would that be correct? You're going to have to say that one more time. So you're saying, you're saying your folks came over. No, no, no. Observe. American, an American oh, guy, American guy come over to the UK. Oh yeah, 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 no, yeah, yeah. I hope so. And I hope that happens. Also, I would say yes. I, certainly. Yes. I don't know the exact details, but I would say yes. Um, I, without a doubt, part of what your guys go through as a brick and beacons, uh, or what our guys go through too, but it's just different terrain, you know, it's just a different place, but it's, it is, you know, it's incredible with the amount of weight you put on and the ambiguity with what you do it and you do it. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge for sure. But you know, I'll tell you what, too. I would hope that, you know, all of us, especially the five eyes, I would hope that all of us would go see other elements and see what they're doing and say, hey, you know, I mean, we have a liaison officer there uh, in Hereford. And, you know, you guys have folks over here. Uh, you know, why not, you know, exchange ideas, figure out what people are doing. And then, you know, because everyone benefits from more than one instructor. It's have a bunch of instructors you have a bunch of different ideas you have to bring them to the fore without a doubt yeah. yeah um just talking about working together then i, I just from what i've read in, in books and, and and things like that um there, i know there was a lot of um partnering if not necessarily in terms of squads or teams or whatever but on on, on ops there was a lot of partnering between uh coalition sfs on on uh direct action uh targets and stuff like that in iraq um how how did uh how did your time in iraq roll around then because i'm i'm guessing you were you were at that tier one unit by then yeah i was and i spent almost all my time in baghdad uh or in al-assad out in the western euphrates river valley uh what i was, I was just talking about that yesterday in fight um uh I, i've done a couple of ops with uh with the SAS 
And right, it was right in the beginning when, <laughs> fuck's sake, we were, we're driving around in pinkies. You know, we're driving around in unarmored <laughs> pinkies. You know, you're like, uh, in 2005, you didn't do that. But uh, in 2003, you did. Uh, so we, we did a lot of that. And, and you know, we brought, we brought another asset to, to our task force partners, all of them. We brought the dog. We brought the dog. That was a new thing. That was uh, uh, was a really good thing. And we brought that to you. We brought it all of the five eyes and the task force partners. That was really cool. And I was part of that. I was very, very blessed to be part of that. Um, yeah, Iraq was great, man. It was, it was good. It was. Uh, I told another guy. I told. I, I told uh, John Hendricks. I said, you know. It, like 2005 time frame, 2005, 2006, the snake eyes, and we were out there for a long time, and the operational tempo was super, super hard. And even if we did a deployment for 110 days, you know, you're out the door 90 days, easy, easy. You're at maybe even 100. You know, there's hardly a day you're not going out. Uh, that can grind on everyone, of course. And um, but 2005, 2006, you know, was the, the snake eyes. It was all the western Euphrates River Valley. It was Heat, Haditha, New Abadi, Abadi, uh, Karambala, Haklania, Rabit, Alkaim. Um, Fucking hell, you can remember all the there was names. More in there somewhere, too. <laughs> I don't remember them all. Uh, it, you know, of course, Fallujah, Ramadi. Um, I love the I love geography anyway. You know, as a as a person, I can't remember a lot of things, Dave, no. but <laughs> I can't remember some of the anniversaries I have to remember or need to remember. Uh, but I remember uh, some interesting other stuff. But yeah, it was uh, that was a great time, man. It was the best of times and the worst of times. We lost a couple of really good guys, and we also went into places where Newsweek magazine would say the Marines can't go here. They have tanks, and they still can't go to these places. We went there with impunity. We went there all the time. Um, it was funny. Just would go. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how much stake. There's a different. You know, hold on, command Dutch. Put into what the, Dutch. There's a there's a reason that you could go there and the Marines couldn't go there though. You can't take you can't take a hundred a company of Marines is what 120 odd guys. It's ten times easier getting twelve or sixteen or whatever number of guys you were operating in and in a helicopter in and the fucking 20 minutes later helicopter out that's a lot easier than it is to get 120 guys in and out in the same period well still though if you look at the if you were if we did a whole force worth it might not be 120 but i i wouldn't it wouldn't matter to me they could go this is this is my yeah, point. all right okay all right okay yeah, yeah. They, could go. they were not gonna go right okay they gonna no, 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 I get it, yeah. one thing or another yeah but no i get it. we would we would go all the time. Uh, there was some great stories that came out of all that, all that stuff. I always, I always said I wanted to write a book, but you know, I'm never going to give up names and stuff. I think, I think I just make up a bunch of names and, and uh, talk about all the funny things that happened. You, you've been, you, you know, how many funny things happen? Like the dude walk around with his cock out. The, uh, the, how many stories are there? There's just there's one story after another that are so funny, and you. I don't think people even you, you could make it up. Everybody like, is this maybe true? It may not be. It's up to you to decide. Yeah, there's some funny shit that comes out of that crap. Yeah, you could just make a bunch of bullshit up. Yes, you probably can. 
you, you, the thing, people would say, ah, oh, they're making that up. That didn't happen. Well, yeah, it's up to you to decide, but there's a lot of funny shit that happened and people wouldn't believe it. Um, but there was, you know, men we'd honor. I think in, in mixed with the humor, there's these great moments of tragedy and great moments of triumph. Uh, we'll see. Something well, hey, listen, you should fucking definitely do it. I'm, I'm 95,000 words deep uh, in a journal that I took in 2011-12. And, you know, my journal as, as a young Lance Corporal po uh, point man um, of a reconnaissance unit and, and my job was to essentially pick a pick a route that didn't get the guys blown up. Um, that And there's a book there, you know, it's whether it, whether it gets taken on or not, I don't give a fuck. And I'm, if it doesn't, I'm just self-publishing it anyway, so... It doesn't take it doesn't take too much time. It takes a year, two years to do, to write it up, get it completely finished from start to finish. You should definitely do it. You've got a whole heap of shit. Yeah, maybe I'll, to to refer to. I want to just honor. I want to. Yeah, I, I'm like, I'm like, we'll see. But yeah, I want to honor those guys that came before me and stuff. You know, it's all about gratitude. And yeah. I don't want to. Well, reading your fucking uh, reading your bio, it's like a recruiter's wet dream or a book editor's wet dream. That you know that you, <laughs> you fucking read that and it just their pants thinking about the amount of content or amount of uh you know amount of shit they can make out of it but um yeah it's 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 crazy i'm just reading here on, on our fucking on our, on our show notes over a thousand combat assaults you know just something sim simple like that how many people in the world yeah, have got that so you got to figure you know 10 years if you did 10 combat tours and you're out 110 days each and think guys we were out much longer than that and you're out every day. Well, that's a that's a hundred. That's a hundred times ten. Um, that's a thousand. And then when you, if you really, if you now then there's another idea. So if you take how many buildings did you go to tonight? You went to three, or you went to five, or you had to switch targets. So you went to this as your primary target, but that changed. So now you have to go to five other buildings. That's five more assaults. Yeah. That's five more. Stop what you're doing. Quick frago, let's get over there, do it right, bam, 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 you go. And then, then it's again, then again. And then there's, yeah, there, there's a, there was a lot of, yeah, we did a lot, a lot. Yeah. Those men, those men uh, are amazing, all period. And there's, and I'll tell you what, you think 10, 10 is a lot. Eh, some of you will say 10 is a lot. I know guys that are 26, 24, 20, you know, all they've known. All they've known from high school, still in the army, is combat. Well, I, some of these kids. Yeah, I was just, uh, I was just actually <clears throat> thinking there as you were saying that about these guys who've got twenty six or whatever. I was just thinking about the the uh, your man who just won the medal of honor and uh, listening to his speech. Um, he had seventeen combat deployments, which is a fucking shit ton. Yeah. Um, and how long yeah. are you guys doing? Ninety days or three, four months? Yeah, yeah, about, about one hundred ten days. I mean, it depends. One hundred ten, one twenty, so ninety to one twenty. Just yeah. that window right there. Yeah, that's a fucking lot, mate. <laughs> you know, that's a that's a shit ton. And uh, in terms of like, yeah, in terms of I know uh, a guy named John who did. Go ahead, go. In terms of the op cycle, then like doing ten tours and doing three or four months each time what's it what's your what's your time like back in the states and what's your downtime like are you getting are you getting no downtime or are you just completely back into the next op cycle 
no, no, next get, build up. So there's just like anybody, just like any uh, element, you're going to have a somebody who's deployed. You're going to have somebody who's in garrison, and you're going to have somebody on, you know, things like that. So you're going to have uh, no secret, right? No, it, it's even uh, large airborne division or whatever large infantry division, right? You're going to have some guys uh, working at home. You have some guys working a deployment. You have some guys doing training somewhere else. Yeah, yeah for people listening, the cycle is generally ops, rest, training, ops, rest, training. And that's whether it's SF or fucking regular infantry battalion. Um, but I was just... Well, what's I funny was, is the rest. Does that, what does that mean to you? Rest, rest means that you're not... <laughs> you're not on build up <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're actually sitting in your arse you could be going away rest. and doing a, pro a promotional rest, course rest mean rest. fuck no rest means you're fucking working super hard at home yeah and you're fucking smashing it right and then it was i remember i remember conversations like what what the fuck you know i'm going to bed at eight o'clock at night because i know i'm going to get up at fucking four and you know i'm going to ride my bicycle to work or i'm going to ride my bicycle when i'm at work or I'm going to get up at four or five so I can get to the gym at six or I can grab a little bit of breakfast and then be on the range at eight. I mean, it was, you're not, there's no rest. There's no, what kind of rest was that when you, you know, but it, it was funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's, it's harder for the families for sure. Just the other day with gold star uh, for the American families, gold star family uh, recognition day. Mm -hmm. I didn't mention it on my social media, but, I mean, that's important. You know, I would, I'll tell you that, you know, when you lose a mate overseas, uh, the operational tempo doesn't stop. You lose a mate, you clean up his kit, you put him away, you honor him in a ceremony outside. And then guess what? You know, you're going out tonight or you're going out tomorrow. You still got to go. That doesn't change anything. When I was home, after a, a health issue I had, I was home and a good friend of mine was killed. And he happened to be a neighbor of mine. And the worst thing I've ever seen in my career, I swear to God to you, is, was watching wives of other men come to see her and her coming out on a yard and just all the pain. She's never, you know, he's newly married died on his birthday, not coming home. And to see the wives all come together and cry, yeah. that was the worst thing I've ever seen, man. That was To see what they go through, now you're seeing exactly what they go through. And it's just it, the, the, the thought of, you know, these other wives too, the, without a doubt, the other thought. The thought is, my guy could be next. My guy, I'm, he's in theater right next to yours. He could be next. And that that's uh, that's punishing for these ladies, and uh, you know, it's um, you know, you see the Band of Brothers, uh, um, not Band of Brothers, but Saving Private Ryan when uh, Mrs. Ryan gets her four news, her four letters at the same time, you know, four telegrams from mm -hmm. Western Union or whatever at the same time. That's horrendous, you know. But yeah. Any kind of thing like that, right? it strikes a chord to me big time now, especially since I've seen it. Yeah, but you're definitely more easier to warn your people. You're definitely right about like um about losing guys on tour and stuff like that. In the middle of middle of ops, it doesn't fucking stop. You, you hear about someone someone you know getting getting hit or whatever, and it's like 
you'll you'll get it in a in a an evening brief. Oh, we lost a guy o- over the week, uh, over on that last stop there, and it's like everyone's just like fuck. And then that's kind of it. It's like the meet the brief goes on. You get more fucking you know more points for the next day, and then you just you, you come out of that brief and you discuss it between amongst the guys for about five ten minutes, and then that's it. You maybe think about it for a wee while, but then you're just fucking cracking on to the the next task and you know the the next mission sort of thing. It's um, it's it just is such such a constant cycle in, in terms of a you know it's essentially just a big chocolate factory just constantly revolving around you don't even have time to oh, stop go. yeah you don't have time to stop and think about stuff like that um i don't know if that's maybe i don't know if that's maybe got to deal to do with the fact that uh guys are getting you know deal, having to deal with mental health issues post because they're not dealing with the traumatic events at, at, at the time um i don't know I've, I've been lucky enough to never actually have lost any guys in my company on my platoon um but in a battalion and on my first two we lost i think seven guys and then we only had one serious casualty on my, on my second deployment um but yeah and i've never had any real mental health issues so you know i don't really know i don't i'm not really the most qualified to talk on that but yeah there's there's definitely something there in, in the way that it's dealt with you know at the time of of incident um i think it's maybe um it's a good thing it's dealt like that with the guys you know it's just kind of understood acknowledged and then put to the back of the mind and we just crack on because if you were to sit and dwell on it man that would be a fucking shit six months it's a shit three four months yeah how many things are there that come back to mental health issues huh? i mean i i don't i certainly you know i would i would I tell you what a friend of mine told me everybody has it. well you know i don't i don't think that's true but they're, they affect us in different ways of course um, you know, I'm, well, I don't know. I, I'm affected in different ways, I'm sure, than some other guy, but it's really a lot of mind, you know, reading Grossman's books, like On Combat and On Killing. There are people that can, with that kind of thing, and get up in the morning and go to work. They can. They just can't. Yeah. Um, psychologically, you know, we're all different. I get it. Psychologically, that's a very important part. You have to be strong. You know, it was the Navy SEAL. What was the Navy SEAL? Um, the book. It was a Medal of Honor, where he said you you put all this stuff in a box. Hey, I've not read. I've not read that. I think it was Men of Honor. It was a movie. They they actually used Navy SEALs as actors in the movie. Um, Shock. And. Yeah, and it was, he talks about that. He's like, you put it in a box and you push it down, and you do. You, I mean, there's shit you don't want to talk about. Well, it goes in a box, it goes yeah. down there somewhere. <laughs> what else are you gonna do with it? Yeah, you know, I'm okay with it. <clears throat> I've fucking talked a bit of shit then since since uh, since being on tour and stuff like that. But um, fuck on tour, it's just you know, the next day you're playing volleyball. <laughs> That's just a hard fact of it. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, so in in Iraq then, what was your what was your uh, the situation enemy forces in terms of who who were you going after uh, early early Iraq? Obviously, yeah, early fu- Iraq obviously was, top you know, dog fucking Saddam. Uh, yeah, early early Iraq was that. It was exactly that. I was sitting out on Highway One looking for you know certain vehicles doing certain things and HVTs man high value targets. Those were the Decker cars trying to knock them out. You know. And, 
uh, all the task force was trying to do that. You know, we were just one at a time if you could. Was there like um, a was there a, a rivalry between all, all different task forces? Who can get the most? Nah, not that I. <laughs> no, not maybe. It didn't affect me. Yeah. You know, go do your job, Roger that. Okay, uh, but yeah, there might have been. I mean, there might have been by command or something. You know, somewhere after that, I don't know when the the powers made their decision, but then you know, different different pieces had different places in geography. So then, that was their place, and then this was our place. So, so there was no more rivalry. Or there's nothing. There's nothing left to pick. You know, you just you somebody else made those decisions, and so now you, you this is your spot. You inherit it. You, you take you know take care of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, we focused on the HPT, so it's good. Really, how how are you uh, executing? How uh, what was the the scope of your um, execution of those H HVTs? Not in terms of individually executing the 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 target, but executing the op. Like how how broad were you going in terms of um, you know deploying on the ground for three four days or you know deploying on the ground for ten minutes? What what was the the range of things? Not much of time. No, no, most of the time you have assets. We had assets watching or doing something, and then we're going to, when the time is right, when we think we have enough information or enough knowledge from the assets, then we strike. Yeah. So there was, but there there were times too where, you know, there's two different mindsets to that, right? So there's the wait and find out the information. So when we come over here and strike this, you know, what's, what's the network going to do? What are the bad guys going to do? So. Um, two different mindsets, and we we did them both all the time. Everybody does, uh, and quite successfully. <laughs> I like that snigger that you got there. Just uh, can just imagine cunts getting slotted oh, in the middle of the night. Um, in terms of um, TTPs, then what was the what was the the general enemy uh, TTPs that you're experiencing on these on these hits? Probably the same thing you ran into, uh, even in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, the enemy does his thing in the daytime, hides up in the nighttime, and he hides up with his own family. So you have non-combatants all over the place. You know, not necessarily use him as a human shield. I don't know what that paragraph looks like in the in the uh, war crimes book, wherever that is. But the human, you know, they, they just that's where they live. They live with their families, for God's sake. You know, fuck. Um, so. On occasion, they would get smarter. Or they would somehow evolve uh, here and there. But really, is it, more than anything, is what I feel what we evolved. We evolved, you know, in the beginning, it was capture, kill. Capture, kill. My man doesn't have a gun, he gets captured. My man has a gun, he gets killed. And really, that later on, that evolved. That evolved into, you know, you don't see a gun on this guy, but he has a grenade in his pocket. You don't see a gun on this guy, but he's wearing a vest that blows everybody up uh, you so this has to evolve right as as a force to protect your own self this has to evolve into kill capture you know mm -hmm. do what i say and you can survive this right uh if you don't you're going to get the good news so i mean that's the end of it but that really the evolution was through my eyes for what i saw what we did uh and of course there's evolution for everything you know weapons equipment uh <laughs> techniques uh, loads of it, but uh, and some of that I can transfer to uh, military folks now, of course, through my my teaching and law enforcement. 
Um, uh, and I think it benefits everybody. Again, under the giant umbrella of leadership, really. It just, this is what works and this is the why. Let's talk about it. Uh, then let's do it. Practical application, uh, et cetera. But yeah. the TTP enemies, man, I mean, they're all the same. You know, really the same. Uh, they're talking on the phone. They're making messages. They're, you know, and what do we got to do? We got to infiltrate that, that network, get your assets to be seeking out that information that you can find. Uh, maybe somebody on the ground, you know, the humans, you guys are really, really good at humans. The English uh, Army UK was always good at it. Um, British. We weren't so good at it. British. Yeah. British Army. We're, we're better. <laughs> you said English. <laughs> I thought that's that English. The British <laughs> Army. You're right. Britain. Um, Don't forget our the, Scots. You guys are always good at human, man. <laughs> Why so? We were never good at human. Why? We got, we're better at it. We're way better at it now. Why so? I don't know. Probably because of your time in the Sudan. Probably because of your time in Southwest Asia. Probably because at a time and place in, in the world, the empire was the empire. Yeah. You, you guys, shit. I mean, you had the empire. So I know you just, I, and I, I, I can't. All right, so I'm I'm stepping over myself a little bit here, but I don't know that to be true for sure. Yeah, I don't know why you had better human sources and better techniques than we did. You just did it more than we did, and uh, you were better at it. We I think we're better at it now. I don't know. I would, I guess I would hazard a guess that we're probably still not as good as some elements of the of what we would call the task force. I think, but but you guys were good. You guys were always good. You what do you mean in terms of do stuff like that how do, how do you determine deter, determine success then and you know you're saying the british were better how do you determine that in terms of targets being correct or in terms of just overall j2 coming in i think in the beginning for sure watching from the outside watching you and knowing what happened uh you had a lot of elements that were not afraid to get in civilian garb and drive around and I don't know, and interact with people and then find those people that want to turn in on their country or protect their family or do it for money. The things that everybody sees that as the reason why you want to help. Uh, and you, we didn't do that. You know, I think, I don't know where that stems from, you know, in Vietnam, we had the castle doctrine pretty much. We're, we're, we're up at, at these MSSs, you know, we're up at these uh, pubs, forward supporting bases, forward operating bases. Yep. And we don't go anywhere. Go on patrol, come back. Go on patrol, you know. And we kind of were doing that same thing in Iraq. We in, in the beginning, I don't think we did so much. But later on, I think we were doing it. You had, had Firebase that. You had Diamondback. You had Chapman. You had whatever. All these Chapman was in Afghanistan. But, um, or was it? God bless it. Names I don't even know, Anaconda, uh, or whatever you know, these all these different places, and they patrol out and come back, patrol out and come back. You know, we did the same thing in the green zone. Um, you guys, as far as I know, and I may be speaking out of turn, anybody can tell me I'm full of shit, I don't know, but it seemed to me that you guys had more uh, gumption to, to put operators in a car and go out there and seek out somebody that wanted to make money, betray their country or whatever, or help out. Yeah. Whatever they thought. 
<clears throat> yeah, those videos and stuff have come out with um with American forces doing very similar things, you know, and it's I think it's like you said that he's you know he's adapted and um overcame that issue. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean I've not been part of that community, so I, I don't know uh, exactly, but yeah, I've definitely seen uh, clips online and stuff like that of of um guys fucking kitted up in local local dress and clearly fucking uh yeah. American, and I know that American those soldiers are, doing I'll that. Be, and it, yeah, and you're hanging out there. I mean, there are people that got in trouble, obviously. Um, got in stinky situations, but we had a couple too. But yeah, I always thought you guys were better, and that was always the to me that was always what we heard too. You guys were just better. At it. <clears throat> yeah, probably due to the fact that they just had a, a lot more in terms of uh, longevity of 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 you know time on task. They've been doing it for fucking hundreds of years rather than just a short yeah. few decades. Yeah, and you did it in all these austere places. You know, the empire was strewn across the globe. Yeah. So, all the way from uh, Southeast that. Asia, Australia, down to fighting the Boer Wars, and you know, South Africa, Zimbabwe area, and you know, all over fighting Americans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Sudan, uh, yeah. Lebanon. Um, shit. Just touching on a couple of you, you guys remember. Yeah, fucking for for decades, hundreds and hundreds of years, the Brit British yeah. fucking army or whatever you, whatever they were back thousands of years ago called I don't know Queen's Guard or something like that. Um, but in, how 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 did the impact of that op cycle? You know, you did ten ten deployments in what looks like ten years. You know, how is that on your personal life and um, just in the terms of your fucking body and stuff like that? Because it's not it's not an easy fucking easy role. Body, that was interesting. Yeah, uh, there are some guys that can achieve this with a plumb, but would come out with no injuries. I came out with a bunch. I've had some back issues. I've had three back surgeries. I'm probably going to have another. Uh, actually, uh, coincidentally, I have a, a meeting with a neurosurgeon tomorrow, the thirtieth, twenty ninth of September. So, um, it is tough on on someone it is completely tough on someone you you're wearing your armor you know you're jumping on airplanes you do all that other shit but now you're wearing your armor when you're deployed right you're wearing your armor eight eight nine hours a day if, if that if that's the hit day right uh over over walls uh, you know walking to the target x amount of meters before you get there and then you're spending eight or nine hours on that same target running around um yeah, and then hard on family life. It is hard on family. You bet. It's really hard on family life. Either you know, and I have a saying, you know, either it, either it works or it doesn't. So in the end, with these people, our people, either it will work or it won't. Yeah. That's uh, uh, two, three, two or more people really involved. If you have children and everything else, it was uh, it was not easy, and uh, I will. I will allow you to um, speculate how my family life went because I want to talk about. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it's anything like the guys I'm, that 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 have stayed in for a long time and have been active, I I know where you're at. Um, but did you have any theater specific issues and stuff like that in terms of head shed coming down on you? In, in in terms of I don't know, maybe they say rules of engagements or. Um, things that you wanted to employ that you weren't allowed to? 
No, we were blessed, man. I don't, I don't, uh, I think the biggest, I think the biggest asset or tool that we wanted to use maybe more often and we didn't or couldn't was CS gas, some sort of chemical agent to, to remove people from a space. Um, I know later on in the evolution of what we were doing at times, we wanted to use that, um, and, you know, it, since it's a chemical, it got people really concerned about all that stuff. So in the end, I think it became, uh, I don't, I don't think we use it very often at all. Um, but no, other than that, you know, rules of engagement are explained by lawyers and for the most part. If you can articulate why you did what you did, uh, especially in the vein of force protection, then uh, yeah. no issues. I always find them pretty, cl <clears throat> pretty clean cut. And um, I know some of the guys that, that I work with would maybe struggle to understand that the rules of engagement are theirs. They, they own their own fucking rules of engagement. You get given them, but you own them. Um, and, you know, the platoon commander, the platoon sergeant, such commander doesn't, doesn't have control of your rules of engagement you own your fucking own rules of engagement if, if you can justify it then it's then you have to you know you have to own that as well um but yeah i always seen them pretty clear cut if you just you know if you can justify what you're doing and uh it's legal then you know it's it's pretty simple for me that's how i always felt felt it was um to to work with uh, it just so happens that on on my first deployment the whole battalion the whole time had fucking no rules of engagement. <laughs> they had uh, four, uh, uh, a rules of engagement called four two nine alpha, which pretty much just says you can you can just do what you want. Uh, on my second second deployment, it was uh, the complete opposite. It was they were bringing in things like uh, courageous restraint and all this bullshit. But this, the rule of engagement was still the exact same. But they just wanted us to 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 follow this um, this term that was floating around at the time, courageous restraint. Guys weren't fucking doing that though. They were just, you know, going off the rules of engagements that they were issued to them. Fucking rules of uh, courageous restraint was a load of bullshit. If someone's fucking engaging you, you engage them back. Like, there's no courageous restraint in there. And that's it's pretty clear cut. Um, but other guys that, you know, that weren't confident enough in their own abilities, but they would get caught up in that shit. They would, before engagement, they'd look to no. someone to say, Am I allowed to? Completely or, concur. You know? But you'll hear that though. Okay, when does this come from though? So. Where does where does this individual's idea come from that I can't do this or I can't do this no matter what I want to do my hands are tied from ROE? No, it comes from leadership. This yeah. giant banner of leadership. So that comes, so your platoon commander or your platoon sergeant or your squad leader, someone's did you a disservice because yeah. you don't know the rules. So that your lawyers, the unit lawyers, hasn't come down and talked to you. How come? Well, let's get the let's get the division lawyers down yeah. here talk. Let's talk about the rules of engagement. Because I want to protect my force, I also don't want to give up ground to the enemy. I don't want to give up, you know. I don't want to see Dave get slaughtered by the enemy. No, I, I want to under. I want my people need to understand. Well, okay, that's an indictment on the leaders. Then, yeah, if they it's, don't get it, it's poor. It's poor training. Um, and like I said, like um, the boys that I was working with in my platoon, we never really had much issues with that. Like if it's clear cut for us, if someone's, you know, if someone's engaging us, we're engaging them. If someone's doing something in the hostile act, we're engaging them. But I, I, what I guess what I'm getting at is just wider army. There was stories, um, 
you know, going around of guys who are hesitant to act and would look to someone to ask if they were allowed to before engaging. And it was on, you know, it's documented on uh, TV series and stuff like that of, um, you know, uh, war correspondents or not war correspondents, but just the general media guys, you know, you've got the combat photographers and stuff like that. That would be, you know, recording all this sort of stuff. And there's guys that should be returning fire, but just, you know, they're looking around like, am I allowed to, like, you know, fucking like a rabbit in headlights. But um, yeah, that's just poor leadership and poor, poor training. That, that comes down well, yeah. to you, you hit the exactly nail on the right. head. Exactly right. That's a shame, but it happens, obviously, it happens. And you know, these, some of these other leaders are there too, they're, they are very, very concerned about their enlisted evaluation report or their commission officer evaluation report. They're concerned about this, you know, so. That's been the death of the British Army, British, British infantry reports now. Because they used to be done differently and I can't really remember exactly how they were different, but what they are now is they're, you're reported on by your direct superior. So, uh, search commander will get reported on by, uh, the company commander, platoon sergeant will get reported on by the company commander, but the guys in the platoon, um, the guys in the platoon will get reported on by the, the platoon commander. So there's a lot of ass kissing going on. Platoon commander gets reported on by the CEO. So it's, uh, there's a lot of ass kissing on it going on it's you know it's fucking brown nosing and it's, it's it's really pretty shit what i what i would like to what i would like to see is that minimum terms of service no reports you get reported on peer evaluation you know and it's fucking simple you're a private you do four years after your four years if you're fucking good enough and that third year uh third and fourth year you get peer evaluated if you're good enough you get to essentially move into the next year and then you you do another peer evaluation, and if if you're good enough again, the top third, what let's say, go into your your next rank, lance corporal. But you still have to go and do the course to to pass. So there should be a lot of performance based uh, evaluation rather than just fucking reports, because the reports they they do nothing, and they they just only seek to embolden brown noses and kiss kiss asses. Um, what was some of your personal role, uh, personal mm. highlights in your in uh? And your role in Iraq then, roles in Iraq. My personal roles. Uh, personal you know, highlights. Um, yeah, 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 highlights. Uh, like we talked about a little bit about snake eyes. That was a big highlight. Um, helicopter crashes. I was involved in three or four helicopter crashes. What type of helicopters? Um, uh, Black Hawks and then uh, the wee small ones. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> What the fuck is it like to crash in one of those? Uh, so I've never like all the crashes I've been involved in, or helicopters been disabled. Nobody ever got hurt. Uh, hard landings, numerous hard landings, numerous wire strikes. Um, I saw the aftermath of a horrible uh, helicopter crash. Um, but I was not involved in it. I gave first aid to the men that were involved in it. But the, yeah, it was funny. We, we ran into a streak, me and some other close mates. We ran into a streak of, uh, we had a couple hard landings and a wire strike and another uh, <laughs> snafu. And uh, they were like, hey, you you and your guys are not flying anymore. We, we You're going somewhere else. <laughs> uh, 
but it was uh, it's always interesting, right? It's always interesting. Um, highlights, wow, just everyday life, right? Everyday life, uh, uh, you know, the loss. Uh, I, hey, I'll tell you, there was a target we, a set we went on, and I can't remember where we were. We were south of Madigan somewhere. And uh, we had dispatched uh, a few bad guys on the target. I actually had not done that with somebody else that had done that. And then as we continued to clear numerous buildings, we got to a building where there was a woman having a baby. She needed medical help. And our guy, our guy did that. So when you went back and thought about it later, you're like, well, we took life on this target set and we aided in bringing life in. So it was very, very interesting, yin yang, yeah. whatever you want to call that. But it's just, uh, it's just all crazy parts of life, you know, crazy stories about crappy sea. But um, highlights. Uh, that's uh, what about uh, Fallujah? Because uh, we we had um, I'm sorry, one more time, Fallujah. We had a we had a guest on that was a, that was a yeah, act, actually part in the out, part of the outer cordon and uh, some warriors as the marines went in there and done a uh, done their clearance of Fallujah. You know, um, that was a guy from the Black Watch. He was in his wars at the time on the on the outer cordon. So it'd be good to see where you were in that um, at that time. Fallujah was our first real big uh, engagement. Came out of Fallujah. Uh, we were ambushed along, if, if people know what this looks like, there's an east-west running road goes from Baghdad all the way through to the west, basically. And then right along the eastern side of Fallujah is a northwest running road. There's a clue release there. Um, we had done numerous targets inside of Fallujah at the time. It was just ramping up. And uh, we left the last, I believe, that night. That, that was going to be the last target we did. And we left that target uh, area. We got ambushed. Um, IED set it off. Controlled mechanism of some sort, and then elements on the north. So we're on the eastern. We're on the uh, east-west running road, and elements on the northern side that were attacking us, and elements on the southern side were attacking us. And RPGs, small arms. Um, we put an airplane that night. It was expectant uh, for you folks that don't know that. That's for American. I don't know, I'm sure it's is that your your nine line type medevac stuff too. When you're talking to medics, yeah. But when you put a guy on airplane, expect you expect him to die. Uh, he did survive. He, he uh, has a lot of surgeries to his face. Um, he uh, has done a great job doing it, surviving. Uh, great dude. Uh, but it's it, you know, I think we killed 12, 13, I think the final count was. And somebody said that. I mean, I, I don't know. You see a flash of light. The targets that I was engaging at the time, I was helping my 50 caliber gunner engage more targets on the, the northern side of that road as we continued through the ambush area. Um, you know, I'm seeing stuff. I illuminated with my laser beam. I hit it. I'm saying, just follow me. Work these targets. Uh, there were some guys that were closer to the southern side of the road, and they, they actually came out from buildings and then got dispatched. Um, it was, uh, but it was the, you know. So we go back. We go back to this. We drive through the ambush area itself, right? And then we have uh, a vehicle on fire. 
uh, and then through your night vision goggles, of course, that vehicle looks like it's really on fire. It turned out to be uh, external fuel tanks only, so it wasn't a big deal. wasn't a big deal. Um, but two men on that vehicle were wounded. We pulled them off, and later on, uh, once we get the initial fires taken care of, and we got some more working guys working the assets on the enemy fire, all to the northern side now. And so I'm now I, I I'm working the medics. I'm helping out the medics, and I got a guy in my lap. We're intubating him. Got blood all over me. You know, so that was that was the first was 2003. So up until then, <clears throat> everything for you had just been notional. You know, no no wartime um, footing whatsoever. Uh, training um, in the states, wherever in the world, but well, not except for except for 2001. Except for striking back again. Yeah, I was just about, I was just about to actually come on to Afghanistan, but I forgot that you'd been there before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So not the first, not the first time you'd been deployed in in terms of uh, combat deployments, but a big one for you. Yeah. But that was a different. It was a different kind too. You know, there was there was a strike, and there was the aftermath. We we did some infiltration, and but it was. Iraq was different. It was direct action yeah. almost every night. Uh, <clears throat> Afghan was direct action, leave, prep for the next phase, and the next phase was infiltration. That was it was much. It was not direct action at all. It was more. It was more of a get in here, find these guys, let the assets take care of them, um, and we did. We disrupted a whole lot. They did. They did a great job. Those guys did a great job. Right, so probably no better time right now since we've just started talking about it um, than to talk about your time in Afghanistan. So, um, in our in our uh, pre-meeting brief, we we discussed that you'd been been deployed twice, one in early two thousand and one, as part of a uh, first strike back. Um, if you could, would you give us a, as much detail as you could, or not as much detail as, as you could, but just a brief overview of what that what that was? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's obviously September 11th, the towers were struck, and then, you know, things were very busy. Everybody was busy. Everybody. There was rumors upon rumors, and then there was extra, you know, in this plane could took, you know, there was more rumors about how many more airplanes had been uh, hijacked, and then it was, you know, you're on a short string everywhere you go. And uh, October 17th was his first strike back. And uh, it was uh, we struck back on Muhammad, Muhammad, uh, no Mullah Omar, Mullah Omar's his uh, his presidential palace, if you will. We struck that, and uh, that was the that was the first big deal. That was it? So um, very vague about that. I'll be very vague about that. Uh, yeah. Somewhere. Someday soon, somebody's going to be able to talk about all of it, and it won't be me, sadly. Um, uh, it was. Hey, listen, I completely, un- I completely understand. If you don't, if you cool. can't or don't no, want to cool. talk about okay. it, that's completely fine. No, no, no. It was the longest air assault raid in history of warfare. Yeah, that's fucking. A- <laughs> that would do. That's, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I pissed twice, I think, on the way there. Uh, two reasons, right? I'm sure I'm nervous as fuck. And two, uh, I was hydrating because 
we're going to the desert for I don't know how long. Uh, um, I'll tell you, looking out the back of the aircraft, we're on 47s, right? Big, big bus. And you're looking through your night vision goggles, so you see everything's green and black anyway. And you're looking out the back, and it's a big TV set, of course. That's how you're looking at it. And then, then you see, as we fly nap of the Earth, right? And you see a gun truck, and the gun truck is doing what? He's shooting at you. See the, you see the trailers. I'm like, now, now, now we're in it, Greg. Now we are in it. <laughs> and it's uh, like, wow. Uh, those guys are actively looking for us and trying to shoot us down. Um, and you're just, huh. I was anyway, that's how I was. I was, you know, when we were getting close to the target area, I was just like, well, there's nothing I can do right now. I, I'm on a big bus. Somebody else is driving it. I can't do anything about that other shit, man. There's no need for me to freak out. You know, I've been there. I went to, uh, I went, I went on a, you just, you're here you I went on a, an air assault op in uh, 2009. <clears throat> so basically, my, our role in uh, 2009 was air assault battalion for Regional Command South, and we were doing essentially what SF do, but with a full battalion. So direct action strikes on the on onto targets, but instead of doing it with a team of four or six or eight or twelve or thirty, we do we were doing it with a battalion. Um, so not an SF task in in the slightest, but it was essentially living in Kandahar in luxury <clears throat> we'd go down the go down the flight line and sure. you know get in our chocks we'd mount up and then we'd be in the, in in the the school buses for i don't know sometimes it was sometimes it was about i don't know half hour sometimes it was an hour 45 anyway i remember going to Sangin and um on one of these ops and I woke up and ended up falling asleep and you know people might might think how the hell can you fall asleep on a on a chinook you know it's full of fucking 40, 40 guys with all their kit and as loud as fuck but you can fall asleep in that thing pretty easy and uh yeah. i remember falling asleep but i was sat right next to the 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 door gunner on the side the side uh door gunner and uh i was woken up by him engaging targets and he had a chain gun and I was like, what the fuck? So I just woke up into this environment, like you said, where the door gunners engaging targets. I'm looking at the back and all I can see is green tracer coming up and up from the from the back of the... I was unfortunate like you. I didn't have night sights. I was 18 years old and you, do, you don't give 18-year-old fucking grunts night sights back then. Um, so I was lucky enough that they were firing tracer that could actually see what was going on. But yeah, like you're sitting there helpless and you can't do an absolute thing about it. Just thinking, please don't shoot me in the ass. That's all I was thinking. Please don't shoot me in the ass. Um, but yes, yeah, fucking like time, time of my life though. Yeah, what are you gonna do? So, <laughs> it was a time. It was a time in uh, in Iraq when I went. I supported another element. Me and some other guys. Went over there, supported them, and uh, this was right after the ambush. Really, this was a twenty-four hour, maybe after the ambush, maybe thirty-six. I went over to Ramadi, did some good work there. They did a lot of good work. It was great. We, we uh, got the guy we wanted, and uh, then we got ambushed, and there was somebody got made. Somebody got ambushed. It was. 
ended up doing some pretty good work after that. It was pretty uh, sporty. <laughs> and then we piled into a uh, non-tactical vehicle, and I'm thinking, you know, this is not good. <laughs> we already been made. I don't want to go into this non-tactical vehicle. There's no armor in here. But we had to, of course, when we finally got to the uh, to uh, airfield where we exchanged, we got all the prisoners and put them in our helicopter. And uh, so I'm in there with a couple of my mates and these skinnies, right, or whatever you want to call them. And we're flying back in the Baghdad, and sure enough, here comes the rocket. I'm like, not right now. Not right now. No, don't shoot me down right here with these fuckers. No. And there was chaff, and there was flying around circles, and what circles we were banking. And then, I'm like, God bless, man. It's been a hell of a 36 hour period. Good fun, though, right? Oh, great fun, yeah. Great fun. <laughs> hey, uh, just just touching on that though, because obviously some of our some of our um, experiences are similar, even though we're vastly different uh, experience. What was some of your uh, uh, exposure to regular ground troops on uh, on deployment, and uh, what were your thoughts on just general re- regular infantry battalion in, in, in uh, involvement in Iraq and maybe even Afghanistan? If you have any experience of that, yeah, Iraq, no, no, no interaction in Afghanistan, but in Iraq, yes. And, you know, there's great, great people, great people who want to get after it. 101st Airborne did a lot of work with 82nd Airborne, uh, a lot of work with 101 down south. Um, you know, a lot of great chances for a sergeant major or a master sergeant like me to, to interact with their unit command and talk about, okay, this is the assets we have as a liaison officer, right? That's going to go on target. This is what we have. How are we going to break up your thing? You know, and it, how, how are we going to make up your combat force, your assault force? What's it going to look like? Let's plan this out together. There was a lot of that, and there are a lot of good people. You know, there's all this talk about Navy SEALs or SF or Rangers or whatever. There's a lot of great regular infantrymen out there. A lot. Um, let me stop you right and there. And, hard work. Let me stop you right there, yeah. and you can pick up your your point in a minute. But that what you just said. There's a lot of great regular infantry guys. Is why I started this podcast, because since I got out, I've found it extremely. Uh, I don't know what the word would be, but I found it so disheartening to to find that guys are literally just being kind of thrown under the bus by society. They're they're struggling to find jobs. They're struggling to to make a decent wage. They're you know let's just say they're struggling financially in terms of educate financial education. They're struggling in terms of real education. You know we don't have it like 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 you have it in the states there's not a there's not a there's not a culture of looking for higher education in the uk and unless you're and i don't know you it's such a fucking difficult one but the reason i started it is to express to the to the wider public and the wider audience that there's the regular but the regular guys who have been serving within these units for the past 10 15 20 years I've got a fucking extraordinary amount of experience to offer to any employer and a mindset that will not be met. Like you won't you won't be able to to find um a similar mindset to a guy who's got his shit in order from you know from a, a an infantry battalion. But that's just my view. Maybe you can pick up pick back up on your point. No, no. I'm I'm glad. And I'm glad you know those men and I'm glad you been around those men and i certainly have been too um and again you, a lot of people you know what was a navy seal television show there's 
whatever, you know, the, the book that people write. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great regular infantry guys. Nothing wrong with that at all. Hard work. And a lot of the, a lot of the stuff they did was hard work. I mean, you have to take a place, take a space, occupy that space. You're out in the dirt all the time. You have you didn't get to come back to China Beach. Like you said, you live in luxury in Kandahar. Or I got back to China Beach. <laughs> and uh, that's an old expression. I like Vietnam. <laughs> thing, but, um you get back to an MSS uh, mission support site that's very, it's comfortable. You know, it has yeah. an air conditioner or has a whatever. It has a coffee bar or whatever it might have. You know what I mean? It has a place you can get a hot chow. Uh, you can work out of the gym. You can go to the pool maybe, whatever. Uh, Fuck, you're really living with a pool. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, great dudes, man. You know, and then again, you know, Right in the, in the beginning in 2003, a lot of that, uh, 101, I'm trying to think all the different, one, uh, we worked a lot with 101 and 82nd. Um, and of course the Rangers. And anytime we had an opportunity, almost anytime, instead of screwing around, you know, laying back there in the corner, taking a break, coming to me, hey, Sergeant Jones, bring your men over here. Let's talk about this. How do you how do you talk? How do you uh, work with your detainees? How do you do it? What do you do? Let's talk about this. How do you put your ladders up on the wall? Let's do this instead. Let's talk about that. Show me what you guys do. Can we help you? You know what I mean? Everything we did, we'd bring them down in and say, let's let's get to work. Let's talk. Let's 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 work on hand to hand combat. Let's work on whatever it might be. You know what I mean? So we try to do that as much. As possible. You know you know what that does for um for the guy for the regular guy that you're 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 interacting with there it be, it breeds in massive morale massive amounts of morale and it also uh, brings in massive amounts of confidence in, in you guys's uh capability because yeah. the morale aspect is that right these guys you know uh, you know they might be fucking high flying it's all singing all dancing uh unit but essentially they're just regular guys at the end of the day and if they're if they're willing enough to come and interact and, you know, teach us a little bit of this or that, or even just come and talk to us and say, hello, how we doing? What you up to guys? It's massive for morale for a young 18, 19, 20 year old guy to be t talked to by, or, or, you know, given a quick brief, a quick 10 minute lesson by a sergeant in a, in a, in a tier one unit. That's massive for a young guy, young guy on the ground, just enduring the suck and confidence yeah. in, in you guys' capability because, it, it just in that 10 minutes you might be talking to them they're just absorbing how how capable and how how much of a subject matter expert you are on what you're talking to them about and generally it's going to be at a higher level than what you're receiving from your from your own team leader or or platoon sergeant or something like that because you've had so much more training and so much more resources available to you to to understand the, the broader picture and stuff and a whole sort of a you know that whole sort of aspect but it's massive it morale massive for confidence up, just, i'll say this again under the banner of leadership <laughs> yeah right it's just it's all about leadership man it's just it's just a funny thing people oh you know no it's all about leadership <laughs> all day, so. yeah okay then changing track we're uh we'll move on to the canine uh aspect of things because it's that kind of uh, you kind of picked picked on it earlier on about uh, you guys bringing it over to the the British uh, British units, um, and even that eventually got down to regular units in the in the early twenty tens. Um, we had red uh, guys regularly deploying with regular infantry guys deploying with uh, with a dog, 
which you know two or three years before wasn't wasn't even a, an idea so the this dissemination of of skill set and uh, an asset definitely got there um so props to you for that but you eventually ended up as a project manager for us socom um but how did you how did you start that um that canine career i saw a man one day working a dog and i'm like wow well, that would be kind of cool someday i would i'd be into that how'd that start you know and it just really started from like we talked about before when you, when you have an element to go visits another element no matter who they are the five eyes or wherever and says i want to take that capability i want to take that tool i want to bring it back to my people how is it going to work and that's really how it started to be about as vague as possible it started with a an observation that became an idea um and then it was unknown it was really really unknown how are we going to do this who do we need as an expert you know so now we now we need to bring in some sort of expert some animal behavior expert and uh then it starts growing and can you do can i can, can i do cqb with a dog you know can i do that yes the answer became yes um there was there were many roadblocks they were roadblocks. I mean, the handler would be uh, not confident. I, you know, what if I release this guy in and amongst these other men? What's he going to do? Yeah. You know, and and so it was that animal behavioralist that so the the first experts that we had to get and to talk about this thing. And then even then, there were minds that said, "You'll never do this ever. You'll never clear rooms with an animal." And then it became. I'll tell you, just jump to farther on down the line. It became, I don't ever want to go in this room without an animal. That's, it came, it started with a, a mindset. Well, maybe we can use this for something. And then we started working with it. And then it was, well, let's do CQB. That's what we do. That's our hallmark. Let's do this with an animal. And you know, you use a flashbang, you use a flashbang, right? Pop the flashbang, throw it in. That's a distraction, right? Yeah. So the canine was a live fighting distraction. So I unleash him through the door and he's not a flashbang. He goes screaming in there, <laughs> low and slow, low and fast rather. He's dark, he's black, nobody can see him. Nails somebody, they start screaming. Then we're flooding the room and you know he's a live fighting distraction. Now I can remove him and send him on further whether I need to go upstairs, downstairs. Now what do we do? Now if you want to, you really use him as an asset, you put a camera on his back. And now he can show three or four parts of the assault force what's going on inside this house. Uh, and we've seen some funny shit, right? We've seen some <laughs> tragic shit. We've seen some funny shit. Uh, triumph. Uh, you you know, as a handler, that guy can go from a hero to a zero in a heartbeat. Because if your animal does exactly what it, he needs to do, uh, he's trustworthy and he does exactly what he needs to do. He's a, everybody's a hero, right? He's everybody. He's the man. Well, what if he, what if he makes a mistake and bites a good guy? Bites now he becomes guy, yeah. the zero. It's almost like shooting your, your partner in, you know, in the arm. It's just horrible to watch an animal that you're responsible for nail one of the, your guys. And I'm guessing it happens. Uh, it's just collateral damage, <laughs> but it's happened. 
it's happened. It's happened. <laughs> if it happens once, it's too many times at the same time. It is, it is something that you can accept to a degree, but it's the, but it's the canine section is, you know, they're all operators. It's the canine guys responsibility to work all this out long before it ever happens. And they, they end up, you know, doing a lot of training obviously with the rest of the team. And matter of fact, as a, you know, I, I did more CQB as an operator because I was a dog guy than ever. Cause I did it with you. I did it with them. I did it with them. I yeah. did, I did CQB with everybody. And cause I want, I have to get thousands of reps in for my animal, uh, to make sure, you know, that he's comfortable and he's going to work on target. Now, so we had, we had a couple that were fail that were, that were no fail. We had, we had a couple. Falco was a no fail. Juro was a no fail. They were total studs, you know, but then you had, you had a dog that you didn't, you didn't know. You, you were like, Oh my gosh, you, you send him in there and all of a sudden he's nailing somebody. I mean, uh, get him out of there, you know, get him out. So, he, and even I'll tell you what, we had one too, who was, did everything in training that you wanted, everything exactly the way you wanted. And you got to pick between these animals, right? These animals, it's a fine line. You got to pick between a dog that will scream through enemy fire and 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 real fire, and then smash somebody with with prejudice, and then I can pet him right here, me and you. Let's have yeah. a briefing. I'll hang out and pet. Him. I mean, that's that's a fine line, right? Uh, Caesar uh, Milan, right? Is his name Milan? The guy who's uh he's on uh, in uh, the dog whisperer guy. Oh, fuck he wrote knows. a book that says. He wrote a book and says, you can't do that. That's not possible. Right? Well, we did it all the time. So, and then we, we, obviously we took that capability and we pushed it to you. We pushed it to all of our task force partners. I mean, we, everybody that needed one. And we just really saw this really become a giant life saving tool, period. If there's, if there's 26 animals, we lost 26, if there, we, we lost 26. If that's 26 men, which I suggest to you that there's more than that. More than one of these dogs allowed more than one man to survive during that combat time that he died in that mm -hmm. bullet. So that's 26 plus. It's a force, force multiplier. Came, came home to their, their family. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I gave a speech uh at the uh special warfare museum in uh Fayetteville, north carolina i gave that speech in 16 15 16. uh iron mike is a giant uh world war ii statue there at the beginning of the the monument or the uh the museum and we decided those i'm not sure who all decided there's a couple of my friends and some other organizations that put together a statue of a working dog out there and the, all the bricks are out there for all the dogs that died during the, the global war on terrorism right now there's a lot of them we we personally lost 26 um there's a lot of dudes that came home because because you know this this little thing they'll send his kennel and he'll eat his crappy food and but he'll do it all for you you know yeah. it's, it's a it's a it's an interesting it's just a <laughs> I am I'm passionate about it. And I, I like it all, but I don't think I'd want to get back into uh, doing it all. I did a piece in Saudi Arabia in 1718 to get them up to speed, but I 
first and foremost, I never want to work for them again, ever. Uh, and uh, they don't, they certainly don't appreciate the animal like we do, period. It's just a different culture. Yeah. Um, but uh, they don't, you know, they, they don't listen like they should listen from experts. But anyways, yeah, just, you know, you have a dog here, you put him in a kennel, you give him some kibble and you play with him and then he does the fantastic things that he does on a battlefield and you're like, damn. Just, damn. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I mean, from where, from where you started off, guys are now fucking jumping out of airplanes with dogs. It's crazy. In the 60s, a guy named Mendoza jumped out of an airplane with a dog. But yeah, now it's fast roving. Uh, they come, they come everywhere. Again, yeah. it's not, you know, if you if you have the ability to uh, infiltrate into a target area, they do too. That's, and it's become a big thing, man. It's a, it's certainly a life saving tool, without a doubt, and it's a fantastic. Whether it's early warning, whether they're a sniffer dog, you know, whether they're detecting bombs in the highway, in the roadway where you're going, or they're detecting the enemy in the bush, they are, or in the house, they're amazing. Period. And then you put a little tiny camera on them, and you can see all kinds of shit in there. Um, yeah, so. yeah, that's mad. So the the general type of dogs that that you guys are using, they they're probably the the ones that everyone can imagine: the Belgian Malawa, the Alsatian, the the Cocker Spaniel, Springer Spaniel, for all all these different types. Labrador. Um, is it possible to take other breeds of dogs and do the same thing with them, or is it just really those are the best ones? This is funny. Well, no, that's a good question. But it's, I'll tell you a funny story because of. So we were doing a capability exercise with somebody important. We had a dog demonstration, and um, this woman comes up and again she's important piece of our government somewhere. I don't know. I don't care. She says, "Well, this is great. I'm glad you could do that. What about with a? What about could you do the same thing with a Jack Russell Terrier?" I said, "Man, you could, but that guy weighs 200 pounds. He's running away." And Jack Russell ain't gonna take him back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he doesn't have the same juice. Yeah, he just I mean, fucking, you could, he just fucking punt it, you, wouldn't he? Yes, you can. He would, you would defeat him. <laughs> so you need and you need an animal. You need a line of animals that are large enough, fierce enough, athletic enough. So yeah, you can. You could probably make. You could turn little animals into something horribly mean, and uh, when you wanted them to. But why would you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we 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 worked with Malinois, Dutch Shepherds, Czech Shepherds, uh, German Shepherds on occasion, uh, and some people have called me a breed racist. I love the Malinois. I will <laughs> always. I would always probably. I must. I don't say always probably. I, that's a stupid thing to say. I would most likely choose the Malinois over any other. Yeah, I've got a, a pit bull lab mix, and he's an absolute fucking monster. But at the same time, he's like, like honestly, he'll melt your heart. Fucking melt your heart. Um, so I was just asking that question in terms of, could I make my dog that that good? <laughs> well, he's, if he's a pit lab, so he's got more athletic ability than some dogs, he's big enough. Yeah. So, yeah, he probably could. Yeah. He's, uh, we got him just before I came back to the UK. And he's been great for for the for the wife back that back at at home on her own. Um, and like you said, just for we don't know if we've not trained him to be an attack dog, but just just as that early warning system, 
and the the visual and the the you know the audible effect that he has on let's say a potential intruder or someone who even might be coming and doing a bit of a bit of reconnaissance around the around the house you know if you see him up against the window going absolutely fucking crazy you're just going to pick a different house you know what i mean yeah. she's walking with him on a leash uh yeah yeah exactly yeah right. yeah it's great um it's probably been the, the best thing that i've probably ever bought and he costs us i think he costs us 20 bucks from the shelter <laughs> oh man yes i learned a lot and i had two dalmatians at one point in time in my life as a ranger and then later on and the female dalmatian i had it was super strong defense drive and you could do exactly what you did i trained her if there was a disturbance at the window she would freak out and she she was a doll baby she was a doll baby yeah. but i wore like i, I would trade out I, I would take a mask and a goopy hair and i would go raw you know and i would do <laughs> i would torment her and so every time the doorbell rang or somebody knocked on a window or the door she was on so she was an early warning system no matter what you know she was a deterrent yeah he's the same um another point i p- p- picked up that I wasn't too sure about how you'd respond to is the effect of uh, morale on troops um, in terms of having a dog deployed with them that maybe not be a capable dog, but just in ge- just in general terms that uh, just to have around and fucking be a stress relief. What's your thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, other dogs are capable and some of them were very, some of them were that dog where you could, you know, send him off to battle and then he would come over and sit in your lap. Um, my particular first real dog, my first deployment dog, uh, was Alco, and he you sleep in your bed. Yeah, he loved it. Yeah, he loved it. He liked everybody. Yeah. Sitting in that speech I gave uh, in Fable, in Alisad, we had a, a big bench on the outside, and uh, after missions or whatever, we'd go back out on this big table bench. And engineers made it. We'd sit there and have a have a cigar, or maybe have a whiskey, and he would sit on the on the bench, he would just sit up there on the top. He'd sit on the benches, he'd sit on the table. And people would walk by, oh yeah, here you are. Oh yeah, he, oh, oh yeah, he'd get, oh, he'd get the good look, you know, he'd get the good love every time somebody walked in the door. That's the way he was. But there were other dogs where he didn't, that didn't happen. Yeah. How did, were, uh, how, how did guys just... didn't care about anybody but me, so, so. How did guys respond to, uh, to having the, you know, the good dogs around? Oh, is, there, is there a, is there a, an obvious aspect of stress relief that a dog might bring. Yeah, of course there is. But, you know, it's for for the guy who has him and the guys that are close to him, then that's easy. Then mm-hmm. you know, they see him more often, they play with him, hang out with him. Um, but he was, so you want that, you do want that too. If you can get it, you want it. Because then you can bring him to briefings, everybody sees him, everybody knows him. He's hanging out with everybody. Yeah. That's what you want anyway. He's part of the pack, you know, he's part of the tribe. So that's what you want anyhow. Um, but yeah, you, you love the ones that, that can be pussy cats with the, with the boys and then, you know, evil to the, to the enemy. <laughs> you sure do. Uh, it's a great morale booster. You know, I'll tell you, that's another thing too. Not just the dog, just not hanging out with the dog and petting a dog and being a morale booster, but knowing that he's on your side and having the confidence when you send him in there in that dark zone, he's after one thing, one thing only, and it ain't you. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, he, he, I saw him physically push someone out of the way to get to a guy and fight him. 
crazy, isn't it? How they how they, they can yeah, be so intelligent. Push him out of the way. I got this guy, not you. I got him. <laughs> And again, Very it just cool. boosts it just boosts confidence in in the team. You know, fuck, this might be a little bit beyond our capability. Bring the dog up, and then you know you're confident again. Um, yep. You know, it's, it, he does. Pretty, he will do that. Yeah, exactly. That's will. class. So for people watching you and you, maybe the <laughs> listeners will be able to fucking tell as well. But uh, last time I took up a, a shit ton of uh, Chris's time, and he had to he had to cut away and fucking save the world. Uh, so we came out to finish the the, the podcast off because uh, you, you know you're you're passionate about uh the work that you're doing with police and then some of the problems that that are that are, uh, that are going on with the, the policing community right now and i don't know if you just want to take it from there the uh the problems of the policing community really really i am sure that all across the western world especially your world we see the same problems and it's really like a rules of engagement kind of problem. It's what's within the legal realm, you know, what can and cannot happen. But one of the biggest, on top of all that pressure, what these law enforcement officers have to me is that, so in a typical cycle, I think we might've touched on this before, maybe not, but on a typical cycle, you are deployed. Part of your unit is training. Part of your unit is resting. If you wanted to do it in this, just a triple-sided, uh, triangle-type side a training uh, example. The police officers don't have that. You know, if I wore the police officer king hat, I would say I want – so if there's 50 police officers in my constabulary, okay, fine, I want 100. Because 50 are going to be training and 50 are going to be on the street. And Or at least a fraction of that. Could we do maybe not, maybe not 100, but maybe 75? So I can have 25 training while 50 are on the street and then integrate flopping those with rest family issues and work on the street. They don't do that. You know, so I've worked here in Moore County, North Carolina, many times. And we had one particular time we did a three day course where we brought every sheriff's county member. I think of everybody, we, we trained everybody that had uh, for three days and we did a pro bono and you know, I asked them how many days a year to get to train, and the number was one. <laughs> one day to really train, and that was usually qualification day. That's it. You go out there and you call. Done. Do your qualification day. If you're not horrible, you get to keep going. <laughs> Obviously, if you're horrible, you probably have. I know you laugh, but it's true, right? Yeah. If you're, because here's because here's what we saw, right? So we had we had how many how many shooters did we have training? I think we had six, and most of the time it was just two of us. Um, but I think totally we had four, five, or six in the end. And the, this one particular officer, he he was kind of giving me some gruff at the time. And I thought to myself, I wonder if these other guys are having the same kind of issue with their guys. Because we were doing some dry fire over here. We're doing some live fire over here. We're doing some other stuff, technical stuff over here. So we're doing a round robin type of training event. And so during a break, we brought everybody in. And I said, can I say a couple words? And sure, yeah, sure. And I said, look, how many... I asked one of the, the training NCO, I said, how many days a year do you get trained like this? He said, one or two. I said, and one of these is qualification day. And he said, yes. I said, look, guys, I know that I've been telling you a technique or my other instructors have been telling you a technique that we're doing. And you're, you may be poo-pooing this technique. You may not like the technique. You may think you're a good shooter because you've been doing this for 30 years. Okay. I get that. I said, I'm not here to pump my chest. I'm not here to tell you that we're some sort of superheroes. I'm not that way, but 
you just mentioned you get to train once or twice a year. We train like this five times a week, unless we're on a, a trip or we're deployed, you know, fighting the enemy or something like that. So I just want you to know. And then I, then I said, you know, this guy's got 20 years experience. This guy's got 26 years. This guy's got 30 years. You know, so we, we rounded it all up. We had like a hundred years of experience there. And then combat years, we all had at least 10 years in. So we're looking at 40 years of combat experience. I said, can you please just open up your minds to our techniques and we'll show you how you can make this shock group look like this. And it, and it did go over much better, but that is the biggest issue that I see anywhere. You, you, I mean, people can make a, you know, you could probably spend a whole afternoon looking through YouTube on horrendous police mistakes on video. And most of it is because of lack of training. It's all lack of training. You know, this, the Breonna Taylor case comes up. The, uh, Jacob Blake shooting comes up. The one in, uh, Jacob Blake, where was he? Was he Wisconsin? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was Wisconsin. So there's not enough hand-to-hand -hand combat training. There's not enough aggressive training. And I know that there's people out there going, oh, the police are too aggressive. Eh, that's generally based on lies. It's all based on lies. They're based on, you know, these, these encounters that these police officers have, they, they resort to the last thing. The last thing they have resort to is live fire ammunition because they've exhausted everything else and they're not good at the other things. Um, training, one of the first times I've trained law enforcement officers, um, I said, look, I'm not here to tell you what to do. You show me what you do, and then I'll try to enhance your technique. And right away, I was like, okay, well, let's, let's think about this. So we brought a, it was a, an unknown in a room doing a little bit of CQB. And I said, how do you address that guy? And they had two officers go straight at him, right to the front. And I said, well, okay, let's think about this right now. He, he can fight you both up front. How about we come into an L-shape formation, which you know, is the infantryman's dream, right? One's a supporting element and one's a firing element. And that's exactly what you do. You make it L-shaped so the enemy cannot fight in two different directions. Um, so that L-shape works with everything. It, sure, it works with what you and I could do on the battlefield, whether it's a, an assault uh, or even a defense, perhaps. Even, but, something as, even something as simple as a person search. You, you, you search a person from the side when you've got a man covering you from the front. You know, I mean, it, that, yes. if you boil it down to the 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 simple, simplest level, we're not talking about platoon ambushes here. We're talking about a person search. Yep. It's the same principle, yep. L shape. L shape, and then of course, that guy who's guarding this this you know could be prisoner or whatever he is, this assailant or whatever perp. You know, he's got to be smart enough too to move his body around so his his backdrop doesn't end up in you and me, right, and the other police officer. And I've seen that before too. They just stand there. Come on, you got feet, move. You know, you, you move. Where's that? You got what's one of the big four rules, right? Know what's in front of them, uh, what's behind your target. For the love of Pete, you know, get move that thing. Um, the Jacob Blake shooting. Uh, that's that's so hard for me to even take, you know, because they let him go all the way around without inter interjecting themselves into him. They already tased him. They already had a fight with him, so they've gone to the last resort. Uh, again, they they still could have bottom you have billy clubs i don't know if they had any billy clubs or not but even fisticuffs uh they could have went farther and 
but I'm not blaming them at all. I am not because this guy had already threatened their life. He's already, he's already assaulted a woman inside here. He's done all kind of crazy shit. And now you, you know, he comes around. He's like, well, I'm going to get a knife or what if he could have a gun in there? They don't know what he has, but stand farther away from the vehicle and just line him up. Okay. I'll line you up. You're going to come out here with a gun. As soon as you do, bam, I'm, you know, I'm going to face shoot you. Mm-hmm. You line you up. You got a knife. You got a knife. Drop the knife. I'll, I'll ask you twice. Okay. Done. You know, so that would be, that would look a whole different, a whole different story on video. Yeah. But of course they didn't do that. But again, it's a lack of training. I mean, you hear these stories, you know, police officer shoots kid 14 times. Uh, police officer shoots. Where the kid? Where they? Where was the kid? In Little Jamaica or some shit in uh, in New York City? Uh, this this guy. It was in the doorway. He got shot like 14 times. Um, I uh, yeah, that could lead us down. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I um, I want to bring up a case that we had in the UK. Is a, a a kid called Jean Jean Charles de Menezes, and it was just after this uh, the London bombings that we had. Uh, terrorist attack where they they blew up the the underground they blew up uh bombs uh on the buses and stuff like that and it was like 50 odd people killed yeah, yeah, yeah. and a shit ton of people injured um so post that incident the undercover services you know police and special forces and stuff like that were conducting operations throughout the throughout the city of london and they were on the lookout for someone who fit the description of this kid and so they were following him covertly and uh he ended up um I think he, I think they, he clocked that he was being followed, but he obviously didn't realize he was being followed by the police. Um, so he kind of d- starts to do a runner. He starts to run down into the underground, jumps up, jumps over the barriers, and then runs down the the escalators into the train station, and into the train. And the police at this whole time are chasing him. And when they get there, uh, they fucking light him up. It's the same thing, like twenty, thirty times. Um, and it turns out that the kid was just running because he thought he'd been followed by someone and it, it was a it was a mistaken identity but the two things that i pick out for that is confirmation bias you know if you if you're if you're if you say this is my guy the more and more that you convince yourself that you that's your guy the less and less you real you you take into account all the net all the things that disqualify him as being your guy or all the things that disqualify you from taking a step back um out the situation and just reassessing it and the the reason that i think that that happens is because police might not be trained um to a high enough standard in terms of uh threat inoculate uh not threat inoculation um what's the fucking word inoculation to uh pressure pressure inoculation so they're not put under enough pressure during training they're not taught um how to deal with that pressure when it when it hits them because this is after the incident a real life world uh pressure situation that most of these guys aren't aren't used to dealing with used to sit in an office and getting a brief about your target this that and the other um and i think maybe if they if they were to just have more training and being put under a lot more pressure during that training then uh then that might neg- uh, negate that effect but it's difficult man it's really difficult because the finances aren't there for the press for the training the uh the will of the the ple- the government isn't there to to you know finance the training um you know it's just fucking a, a bit of a shit show but i don't know what you no. said there about um about you know identifying the training and listening to people who have got experience while they're getting the training um and then other things like combatives and stuff it's just i think this that's the way forward the way forward isn't to just 
empty fucking magazine into someone when when you've got the legal right to do so just because you're legally you've got the legal right to do so doesn't mean that you should you know what i mean i think that's both the case with the, the brianna taylor incident where there was like what 20 or 30 shots fired into the building and the same thing with jacob blake like just because you've got the right to fucking engage a target doesn't mean that you you, you have to or you even should like you said, like you can create distance, you can do other things like, you know, one uh, have a SOP where it's like maybe one guy fires and then the other guys, you know, if you've not got clear line of sight then and you can see the other person firing, there's no real need for you to, you know, I don't know, it's just, there's other, th there's other things that you can do to um, mitigate these factors. Well, yeah, this is the thing, this is the leadership, the leadership banner, right, of experience, This the whole banner of leadership comes in. So here we need good leaders who have the experience to know what kind of training has to happen. Then you have to find the funds for the training. You have to have the constabularies uh, agreed to the training. It has to be hard training. It has to be training that's periodical. And then you have to take that training to another level when you say, okay, we saw what happened with this guy in the underground. Let's make a training. So what, you know, what do you do? I, I have 20 guys in my training class. And guess what? One of the culmination exercises is you're going to run through this thing. You're going to run after the bad guy. And you're going to set it up just like that scenario as much as possible, right? So you're and you're going to have how many scenario after scenario? I'm going to do sixty with simunitions, simunitions. You know, the, the, how many times you mentioned it with the, the Brianna Taylor? And I don't know if this happened or not with their law enforcement officer here, but I know I've seen it before. Is a sympathetic shooting, right? You know, just what I'm talking about. No, I've never heard of that before. That? No, I've never heard of sympathetic shooting being so if. Yeah, officer, officer one sees the threat and shoots the threat or thinks there's a threat and fires at the threat. Officer two, not seeing a threat or not, just go ahead and, and agrees with officer yeah. number one and, and shoots him as well. Uh, and that's, that happens all too often. That's because training isn't taking place. There's not enough training. And how do you fix that? You find tough realistic training with simunitions that you do periodically that happens everywhere though of, that happens in the military yeah. as well the amount of oh, times I, no you're exactly right. the amount of times i was we were in a contact and i even done it myself i'm not gonna lie amount of time we were in a contact and i like i look around and i'm like what the fuck are you guys firing at oh i don't know and then sometimes i'm just like oh fuck it you know I'm, i've done it myself when i was a young private soldier you don't really know where the target is so you just fucking copy everyone else but when you're doing that and you when you're doing that in your own country against fucking uh, private citizens, it's completely different uh, uh, than if you're engaging a fucking hostile enemy. Um, you may they, not be you may not be culpable for every round you fire in Afghanistan or on the plane of Jazeera, you know. But you will be if you're in Wichita, Kansas, or if you're in fucking Edinburgh. You know what I mean? That's good. Yeah. You know you're you're gonna be you're gonna be you're you're gonna, someone's gonna ask you where that round go. What, what, they, so what, what, here's one of my big issues too, right? So the, the courts that are going to decide what happens to officer number one or number two in any given shooting are going to be much harder on that officer about what he did than the trainers are for how he did it. That, and this is, that's what hurts my heart more than anything, man. It hurts my feelings more than anything is that there will be a courtroom that will be super hard on that officer, but there's not – a training regimen or a training uh, a path, if you will, right, in place to help this guy survive the street. It just isn't, and it just it just devastates me. But I, I don't think that's ever going to change. You know, with these these American politicians talking about re reimagining policing, <laughs> reimagining policing. They just need what they need is tougher police. One, 
they need to make it worth their while too. Because oh, by the way, it's a bargain. Uh, I just I trained with Lubbock, Texas, not too long ago. You know, and talking to some of the patrolmen, how much do you make? Twenty-eight thousand dollars a year, thirty thousand dollars a year. Like, Fuck sakes, you're on the fucking. That's a bargain. Yeah. You throw on some armor and go deal with that fucking meth addict for twenty-eight k a year. That's a fucking bargain. Thank you. That's a that's a bummer. But that's the sad state. That's the sad state of affairs. Um, you know, reimagining policing to me would be having more police officers, spending more money on law enforcement, and training them more often and and harder. It sounds counterproductive, counterproductive and, and I'm a fucking uneducated cunt, right? But would it not make sense to spend more money so that you so that you don't end up having to pay as much money out in all these compensation claims? You know, like the like Brianna Taylor's family, I think, has just got something what, I don't know, twenty, thirty million or something like that. If they win that, I don't know. Yeah. I know that I mean, uh, some, George I mean, George Force won a lot of money. Yeah. Like if you just if you were to invest that you you know maybe ten million rather than or twenty million, then you you've not got one a year that's get you know then you're training your guys up you're using that money to train your guys up better so that it doesn't happen that these things aren't going to happen and again again in the future but the, the reality is it's humans humans are always going to make mistakes it's going to be difficult but the more time and e energy that you put into into your your staff into your product the better it's going to be and that that goes with anything and it has to be the same with policing like i said i'm not fucking educated to the the level of being a police chief and i've never been a police officer i don't really know but i can just tell no but you from have common sense that from, doesn't matter. yeah i can you're just still, tell from you're common still allowed sense to use your, you're still uh, yeah you're still allowed to use your gray matter to figure out the problem and that's you know yeah. this, I, i'll tell you what so we'll spin it to another little segue there how many people you heard about COVID or about the social justice or the policing? Well, you don't know because you're not a scientist. You don't know because you're not a police chief. You don't know because you're not, uh, I, that doesn't matter. That does not matter. There are smart people everywhere and they have great thoughts about one thing or another. This whole idea that, well, just because I'm not a fucking medical expert, I can't talk about a mask and COVID. Well, yes, I can, by the way. Uh, and just because you're not a police officer, you can't talk about uh, meeting the enemy face-to-face -face on the battlefield. Oh, yes, you can. So, yeah, whatever. I, I, I'm done with these people, that, these so-called experts. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, but just going back to that point in terms of that you were talking about keeping uh, being accountable for your rounds, like that is something that the lowest guy gets taught in, in, in training uh, in the army. Like you need to be, you need to be able, you need to be counting your rounds. You know, so you need to then be accountable for them. If you're just going off and blasting fucking 120 rounds in the first 10 minutes of an of a contact, your platoon sergeant's going to be pretty pissed because you're fucking wasting rounds. There's no reason why you should be firing that much rounds. Um, in any any situation, you know, in five minutes you should never be firing 120 rounds. And in one in one house, I don't I don't know if you should be firing fucking 20 rounds at one or two fucking two people i've always been trained if you're doing cqb it's two two to the body one to the head and if it doesn't neutralize then continue to the head so that's maybe six rounds of absolute maximum per target i mean you could maybe tell me difference because you're a cqb instructor i'll tell you i'll tell you to me so if we if we enter this structure right and i turn my i, I go to clear my corner and i see a guy moving left to right firing at my mates because you know we're gonna be we're gonna be doing two different entries so if this guy over here 
is shooting at one of my mates over here, and I'm, I am going to go ahead and I'm going to smash him until it's over. Uh, I personally, you know, have seen a guy shoot another dude 12 times. doesn't take very long to get 12 times, and then he sweeps, his, sweeps back around. He clears his corner. He takes that on his way to his point of domination, eliminates the guy, probably shoots him 12 times. Uh, he eliminates him. He comes back. There's non-combatants on his side. Okay, done. Back on. But, yeah, he, he continues to shoot until he's crumpled. And, it, you know, it does, when I'm not counting – and I hope that you, as a mate of mine, are out counting. And I hope you don't think I'm counting when I go wah, 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 on my way to destroy him because he's not going to shoot you. I'm not counting, so I'm fine with. I'm fine with that, you know. And you obviously know your background. And again, it just comes with experience as well. But he, he sees his background. Nobody's over there. There's no, you know. I'm just going to go ahead and engage that guy until he's completely destroyed. That's I'm completely fine with that. Uh, obviously, the, the guy in this particular case had a rifle. He was pointing it in the direction of other uh, other mates, and he got the good news. Yeah. So, okay, with twelve. I mean, I'm <clears> sure <throat> he he probably killed him. He may have killed him the third or fourth shot. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay with. Yeah. I'm point okay with point taken. But as I mean, as, like in terms as of long training, as that doesn't compromise you doing something else. Yeah, and and yeah, point complete a point point completely taken. Um, uh in terms of training though what what sort of stuff do you do on the range i'm, I'm sure it is something similar to two at the body one at the head two at the head or because uh, i'm 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 pretty sure that you, you're not training guys to engage 20 times into one target or two targets no so what what i would like to see if uh, i think a lot of my instructors might agree with me but what i would do is it, it depends right who's your who's your class what's the derivation of your class is it a beginner class is it intermediate plus is it an advanced class are these guys accomplished SWAT shooters? Let's go through that. But I want, obviously, I want to see a basic uh, diagnostic type test where I can see a guy can easily shoot four four shots, five sight pictures in the chest in a close close box. He understands where his hold off is on his rifle to his dot. He understands that you know since he's done a two hundred meter uh, zero, now that he's five meters away. You know, to shoot somebody in the in the face or in the nose, he's got to put that dot just above his head or right on top of his head. Uh, you know, how wherever your your zero is on that. Uh, as long as I can see that, then we can go into that. But yet, we, the evolution and you know, you, you know, shots to the body, shots to the head. What I would ask any any shooters, if I was just doing a diagnostic, whether they were beginning, uh, intermediate, or advanced SWAT guys, or uh, you know, special forces guys, I want to make sure that they know where their hold off is. With regards to the shot, 200 meters, zero, you know, puts me at five meters. I'm going to have to put the dot above a head to get a head shot. Uh, and then going back to the evolution of that. So when I was a first, my first was a ranger, it was just double tap. They called it double tap. And then later on, it got to be controlled pairs. But it was just two shots and down, two shots and down, two shots and down. Nobody concerned themselves with the third sight picture. And if people still today, I, I, I tell how many. So if you shoot twice into the target, how many sight pictures do you have? People say two. No. People say one. No, it's three. One, recoil management. Second shot, recoil management. Is it over? Don't be in a hurry to get out of the gunfight. Yeah, reset that trigger. Stay on target. Okay, is it done? Okay, it's done. Go. Go do your thing. Uh, five shots, six sight pictures, and so on. Mm -hmm. This goes on, right? These, these people just don't they don't know that or realize it. Um, but that's the evolution. Then the evolution, too, of shooting into the chest. We shot everybody in the chest pretty much all the time. But then we got to thinking uh, some of the ammunition wasn't necessarily made for shooting somebody in the chest or maybe you missed and shot somebody in a, in a 
to the torso somewhere. So evolutionary process was you shoot them in the face, it doesn't, it stops the electricity and it doesn't allow them to continue to fight. Yeah. Obviously, this is the the end all. So if you can if you can negotiate shooting someone in the chest in a very small piece of ground on the chest, then you can certainly negotiate shooting somebody right between the eyes. So that's that's where our evolution of that used to go. And then of course the whole idea is that if this this enemy soldier is wearing armor or not, uh, shooting him in the face is going to eliminate all that kind of variable. It's just it's over. It's just electricity's off. Yeah. Finish. So that's that's on that. And what's your uh, what's your involvement with uh, training law enforcement at the minute? Um, how proactive are you being to to get out there and you know get in amongst it, or um, or how how proactive are they to come and find you? No, a little bit of both. Right now, since I just came back to social media, I have a couple of law enforcement officers from uh, Texas. Uh, I hope to work with the TTPOA again. That's the Texas Tactical Patrol Officers Association. Uh, I'm in contact with some of the guys in the East region. Uh, I've worked with some of the guys in Lubbock before. Uh, so Lubbock, Terre Haute, Indiana, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, Orlando. Uh, did a little bit of law enforcement, just a tiny bit in New Mexico. Um, I want to do more. I hope to do more. I, I got a communique from a guy in Nashville. I uh, hope that we work with those guys pretty soon. Uh, local here, Moore County, North Carolina. Um, so I want, I want to do more as much as I can. I mean, and that's one of the things I really enjoy is making sure that those guys and girls in blue can do it better. Um, I recently pushed a video on Instagram about trigger reset. I was teaching some indigenous guys just flat range shooting and they, every time they shoot the gun, right, their fingers are flying out of the trigger. Yeah. I'm like, all right, all right, stop, stop. So we try to teach them that, and they had no idea. They were just totally alien to them. Um, that was that was an exercise of patience. But yeah, I've seen that. When it, they understood it, though, later on, they understood it. Uh, but any new shooters, even I've seen law enforcement officers do the same thing. They shoot one round, they go, they just escape the trigger well. You know, hey, look, don't, this is my thing. Don't be in a hurry to get out of the gunfight. Stay in the gunfight. It's the same thing with the uh, the the follow-on sight pictures. Bam, 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 bam. Reset the trigger. Take a look around. Okay, is the engagement over? Fine. Dave, you okay? John, are you okay? You all right? Let's go. You know what's the next thing to do? Uh, find work, right? CGP, find work. So. And uh, uh, in, in terms of your involvement, are you are you specifically just sticking with the shooting and the CQB training, or are you having any sort of uh, are you you're trying to maybe just change a little bit of mentality as you're as you're going through the couple of days that you're with them, or trying to influence yeah, them. No, no, I, I appreciate that, and certainly everything I do is under the banner of leadership. So, and again, that's the the whole leadership itself, mentorship, and then the reasons why. So, why do we do it this way? I'll tell you why. Because you need to be ready for the next shot, or the reason why is because you need to be ready for the next piece of work. You need to be ready for whatever, or this doesn't work because. It didn't work for us in combat or you know if you have your kit here this will get in the way if, this, if you have your kit like this it'll be better whatever those little things are all those little bits of information all piled into one under the umbrella of uh, leadership yeah yeah um we'll probably wrap it out here but just quickly um um i wonder if you could maybe just talk about the 
you know the timing of this podcast coming out is quite poignant just because of what's what's happened recently with the the anniversary of the Mogadishu the Battle of Mogadishu um I know it was maybe a little bit before your time but could you maybe just talk about how much of that remains in your community and uh and if guys look back on it or if there's a you know if those guys are still involved that's a great question Dave and uh it's a big so it's a big thing for me it's a big thing for our community so let's first and foremost i was 1993 i was in the first ranger battalion we what we do is what we call a range week we would leave savannah and go to fort stewart georgia and spend the whole week there doing every range we could right rifle pistol shotguns where well, we didn't do shotguns much uh the uh, the coral gustavs the machine guns everything that was organic to the range uh, company um and we were, I remember this clearly too. We were, we were sleeping. It was October, October in South Georgia, man. It's decent weather. We're sleeping outside. And uh, Captain Bannister was a company commander at the time. He came up and he said, uh, 375 is engaged with the enemy and, and Mogadishu and just be ready. You might be, you might be going. And so the whole time I was a young E4. I think it was the E4, 93. I'm, 94. I don't know whether it was E5 yet or not. I might have been. Uh, I'm thinking, yeah, we're going to go. So I fell asleep, of course, overnight, and I hear this chopper blades flying over. I'm like, that's it. They're coming to get us. You know, <laughs> never did happen. Of course, we didn't go. Uh, I knew people on the ground that day. Uh, I, I learned who they were later. I didn't know anybody at the time. Uh, some great leaders uh, in my community were there that I worked with later on in my life. Um, I had the honor to know a bunch of them. And then the other thing that we'll, what we tend to do anywhere we are in the world, if we can, if it's possible, on October 3rd, we'll find a place to go, hopefully fill a glass. And uh, we will recite the names of all the men who have been lost in the war on terror. And it's, it's not that we don't, we obviously appreciate anybody who was lost in Grenada, Panama, um, but it, the kind of the vehicle has kind of started from that day. We name everybody that's on the uh, on the memorial wall, and I did that thing, that very thing, this past third. Uh, the, the local VFW here, which is the uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars bar, and I stood up on a chair and I told everybody what I was going to do. Said, hey, I'm gonna do this, and they all okay, sure. Turned down the music, and I named all the names. We had uh, five or six mates with us, and uh, that's what we did. So, I remember a good friend of mine, Aaron Grider, was buried on October 3rd. He died on his birthday in Afghanistan, but he was buried on October 3rd. He died in September, and uh, at the church in Colorado. It was October 3rd, and we were like, holy crap, it's October 3rd. We had to find, we asked somebody to find some whiskey, and somebody came back with this giant jug of horrible Seagram 7 uh, Canadian whiskey, and we found a bunch of cups, and we just started passing them around, and uh, stood up and said all the names, and, and it, it, sometimes it's uh, it's just, 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 you just honor them all, you know, you honor them all. They were the best of us. And uh, they all made the last full measure of devotion to their mates and to their nation. And 
to make sure we say it. Every, every, doesn't matter where we are in the world, we're trying to stop and say it. Yeah, that was that was that something that inspired you to um, to maybe go down the path that you did go down then? If you were a young ranger at the time, and then obviously this uh, major event going on, and I'm sure that I'm sure that the um, the guys on the ground were fucking a massive motivating factor for a lot of the guys in the army at the time. The the event itself didn't make me keep going to where I was going to go. I I didn't know much about anything. I I was new. I was brand new. I was young. I was uh, I was I was young. I was older than most of the young rangers in my in my peer group. But, uh, but no, I just as I continued, I just saw the to what was what to me was the proper professional achievement, right? Why wouldn't you want to achieve this next level? I wanted to test my mettle as a man. I wanted to see the next level of what, what was the next level? You know, where can I go next? And uh, the recruiter came by and there was one dude in the theater for the recruitment video and that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched the video and I said, holy crap, that looks cool. That looks really cool. And then I had to make big decisions on, on how that's going to go. And I, I waited a little while. I I was a, I think I saw that video when I was a, a sergeant E5, and then when I was a staff sergeant, I tried out. So it worked out for me. Um, that's awesome. Um, and then just we'll wrap it up in this final question: Why the fuck did SEAL Team Six get the Osama bin Laden job? <laughs> okay, no, no, no worries at all. Why? So long before, you know, when the opening salvos of the war happened. Uh, everybody was everywhere. And, you know, I, I took part in the greatest, uh, sorry, the longest aerosol raid in history. Struck with Omar's castle, if you want to call it that, at headquarters. Um, you know, we did stuff on the inside of southern Afghanistan and Kandahar while other entities were doing their thing. And then, in whomever's wisdom, later on down the road, and Somebody else was going to watch this and say, well, it's not correct completely, but, but this is generally correct. Generally correct was, well, they had to divide the pieces of the whole thing. So somewhere in 2003, after the invasion of Iraq, the big bosses all said, well, we're going to divide this into pieces. Who wants this? Who wants that? Navy SEALs got most of TF East, Task Force East, and we got mostly Iraq, and that was... That was it. So that was their territory. That was their thing. Yeah, I just finished That's reading the. Uh, I just finished reading the book No Easy Day, and I was fucking pissed re re reading it. I was like, I know a guy. <laughs> I know a guy who probably should have been on that one. But um, there was a lot. There was a lot of guys that were angry about yeah. it. Um, you know, and I was, I was in. I, it was funny. I was a liaison officer at the time in Afghanistan during that 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 piece of work, and uh, I was not. I was not upset about it at all. Yeah. It's, uh, it was their place. It was, it was their thing. We got, you know what? I mean, other entities got so many other high value targets where they should be happy that they were involved with other high value targets. Yeah. The reason, the only reason I say that is just because, um, they had maybe, they had maybe shot to fit, shot to fame or infamy or whatever, uh, due to the Captain Phillips, uh, event that took place not long before that. And then uh, reading the book, I'm thinking, right, now you're going to go with, with an army force to do, you know, an inter, 
uh, international assault on a foreign, a foreign ally at the time, I guess, uh, into their country. And I would think that would maybe lead lead to an army unit. But you know, if it's split up into AOs, then you know, it kind of makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> I would like to think that if indeed uh, somebody else got that mission, they they wouldn't have written a book about. It. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of books about it now, but and a lot of movies and shit like that. I like the way that I like the way that uh, certain units keep it keep it quiet, man. That's fucking the way it should be. You know, we talked about it a long time ago, and I think it helps. Uh, I think it helps the boss. Uh, I think it helps. I think it would help any leader, any any combat leader, any civilian leader. The ability to say didn't happen or whatever gives them the the ability to deny any kind of bizarre happenings so yeah. I'm, I'm completely fine right dutch we'll wrap up in this last question uh what the hell was it like uh meeting george w he was uh he was good he was uh he was a lot of fun um one anecdote from that a couple he saw a shooting demonstration and he saw a lot of things of course and he said uh one of the things he said, he's like, I knew you were good, but I didn't know you were that damn good. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Uh, and then when I, I shook his hand and he looked me right in the eye and he goes, you know, we're winning. I go, I, I completely know we're winning. Yes, sir. And then uh, it was good. So I had to shake his hand twice, a couple of times. I actually met him uh, three specific times face to face. Um, so it was, he was a good leader at, at the time, for sure. Mm-hmm. And he was good for the nation at the time. So. Yeah, I'd have, I, I would even though I'm fucking British, I'd have been pumped to meet him. Um, I think I'd have been more pumped to meet him than I would be for uh, Boris Johnson or someone like that. It's one of the UK prime ministers. I think it would just be fucking oh, whatever over here. But if I got to meet Trump or fucking George W. Bush or something like that, I'd be bloody over the moon. I don't know why, but uh, I think it's just the way it is. Come on I, over, man. Everything's America. You, you got a chance America. to come over. You got to come over anyway, right? So yeah. Um, yeah, maybe I can get a fucking. You can sort me out with a job or something like that. Picking up brass. <laughs> yeah, picking up brass. <laughs> Only if you wear a bikini, man. <laughs> oh man! All right, Dutch. I'll, I'll let I'll let you get back to your evening. I appreciate it, Dave. Thanks very much, man. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I hope that we can come back around and do something else again sometime. Uh, certainly, if you're in the uh, the US, I know you're going to get here sometime. So when you get here, look me up, and we'll uh, figure it all out. Spot on, mate. Thanks very much.